Hello everyone, this is Charlie Gunner, coming to you from Hollywood. Welcome to a very special edition of Cinema Tractions, our spectacular countdown of the top 20 films of 1990 in two parts. This week, we've got the films that rank from 20 to 11. At the beginning of 1990, the doomsayers were predicting a down year for the movie. Cable was eating into the movie market. People didn't like seeing their movies in malls. And video rentals were predicted to be the medium of the year. Well, they were wrong. 1990 has been a record-setting year for moviegoing, with attendance way up all across the board. And movies are bigger and better than ever. This week, we've got Hard to Kill, Flatliners, Arachnophobia, Bird on a Wire, Robocop 2, Another 48 Hours, Mark for Death, Days of Thunder, and more. So let the reels unroll as we count down the top 20 movies of 1990 on Cinema Traction. Welcome to the 50th episode of the Film 89 podcast. It's something of a milestone for us, and for the very first time, even though we're still separated due to social distancing, all five of the founding members of Film 89 are finally together on the same episode. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight are... Hello everyone, it's Richard Roberts back again. Hi guys, this is Stephen, back again. <laughs> this is Hayden, uh, haven't been on it this frequently in probably since forever like i was on i was on the last episode this is a milestone of my own hey podcast neil gaskin good to be back welcome to episode 50 together at last guys if only via skype it's a dream come true it is indeed it is sky can i just point out that uh, obviously we've made it to 50 episodes now we've hit the big time and this will be the last time that i'm going to be referred to as neil gaskin from now on i want to be known as jackson smooth that's going to be my stage name. that's going to be my stage name okay is that no, right? absolutely fine mate we, we um we'll, we'll keep it neil until the end of this one <laughs> and from oh, then on we'll call it <laughs> jackson smooth uh, i like it so far 2020 has proven to be quite the year and not in any kind of good way we've had catastrophic fires or hayden as ravaging his homeland of australia some of the worst flooding Britain's seen in a long time, and that was just to start. And now the coronavirus pandemic has brought the world as we know it to its knees. And on top of that, we've now got terrible social unrest in the US and well, other countries in the world as well. So what Pretty else? Much, yeah. yeah, what else does 2020 have in store for us? Uh, alien invasion, zombie apocalypse, Godzilla. Well, they've had murder hornets in America as well. Oh, they? those, yeah. Do you know what we're missing? That's a movie. A really good earthquake. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just some seismic activity yeah, yeah, that just, yeah. re- just releases like some sort of monstrous lizard or, you know, perhaps like you say, deadly deadly wasps or whatever. Just something along those lines yeah, now. I think yeah. I think the, the aliens are scheduled for about September, just in time for the kids to go back to school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, here, then, in, um, t- here in 2022, Australia, it's looking very much like Mad Max Fury, Fury Road at this point. Um, <laughs> it's amazing that I was able to get an internet service. I've had to really dig deep to get on this podcast see the thing is hayden the irony is mate over in britain petrol prices are lower than they've ever been now <laughs> yeah because no fuck is going anywhere yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway guys to get away from all of this misery and woe we're going to head back in time 30 years to a time when the cinematic landscape was far different to how it is now you could actually go to the cinema for one thing we're going back to 1990 a time before digital streaming before blu-ray and even before dvd it was a time even before the internet if our younger listeners such as you hayden can imagine such a thing 
Back in 1990, there were only three Star Wars films and they hadn't yet been tinkered with. Comic book movies <laughs> had had something of a resurgence a year before with Tim Burton's Batman, but were nothing like the dominant thing they are today. The boom of independent cinema that had dominated much of the 90s had yet to happen and things still in many ways looked and felt like we were still in the 80s. A decade that still had a strong influence on the year in that we'll be covering tonight with action films still being one of if not the most prominent genres of cinema so why 1990 well firstly it's fitting because it's 30 years ago and we do love our retrospectives here at film 89 but moreover 1990 was a hell of a year for film with a pack release schedule like few others that we've seen in our lifetime and as you've seen from the title of this episode 1990 was also a year where more sequels to mainstream films were released than any other year and we challenge our listeners we challenge anyone to prove us wrong on this because it really was the summer of sequels. It was also a defining year for some, but not all of us here at Film 89, where our obsession with film really took hold. And it's why we've chosen to go back in time 30 years to escape the horrors of 2020, if only for a few hours. We're all roughly the same age. Steve, how old would you have been in 1990? I was 18 in 1990. I turned 19 in September 1990. Right, Neil, what about you? Uh, December 75, so I would have been 14 going on 15, depending on what month we were in. Yeah, I was... 13 in 1990 and I think turned 14 later that year and Rich what about you? I, t- I turned 9 in February 1990. And Hayden dare I ask dare I ask how old you were? I wasn't even in, I wasn't even an idea guys. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in negative numbers Hayden how old were you in uh, 1990? <laughs> I was in negative 3. Negative three. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is going to be your new stage name. Jackson, <laughs> Jackson, Jackson Smooth. Negative three. Negative three. That's, that's a show. We don't need this anymore. Being hated and branching out. <laughs> Episode 51. <laughs> so obviously what we're going to do um, well for the last couple of episodes really we haven't been able to talk about anything new because apart from stuff that's um, hitting digital streaming platforms there are no new cinema releases because cinema's pretty much done it's over for the time being that works look at the quality we're getting on Netflix now we've had Extraction we've had the David Spade masterpiece The Wrong Missy I don't know if any of you have watched that no don't <laughs> <laughs> well Extraction we've got the new Spike Lee coming out uh, I think it's tomorrow yeah that's oh, out tomorrow it? yeah yeah. yeah, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to go through a list of basically the, the main sort of list of big studio films which were released, certainly according to Wikipedia, in 1990. It's not going to be, by all means, definitive because there's going to be some films we're going to miss out simply because otherwise this would turn into a five or six hour episode. Yeah, let's, let's name all the films that Hayden hasn't seen. <laughs> yeah, that, that would take all day. <laughs> You know, amongst this list of films, you know, going from the beginning of 1990 up until the end of it, we're going to hit on a lot of films which, as we said, are sequels, because it just seemed, but for whatever reason, there were a shitload of sequels released in 1990. And starting chronologically, on the 12th of January 1990, the first of those sequels was Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Now, up front, guys, I'll say I never saw it, but the original is one of my favourite films. Unfortunately, then, Toby Hooper somehow managed to make a sequel in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 that was nothing like the first film, certainly not as far as I was concerned. I know it's got his fans, but I'm not one of them, so I was never keen on watching a third one, to be honest, and I've not watched it in prep for this episode. Guys, have any of you seen the third Texas Chainsaw Massacre film? No. 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 But it's a sequel... We're not going to cover every horror sequel because, you know, the list we picked off Wikipedia, it, it seems to pick Marvel Cluster's mainstream releases. Now, there's a few films such as Maniac Cop to uh, Bride of Reanimator, which were released in 1990, which are not included on that list for whatever reason. But again, worth mentioning because they're also sequels. Right, next up in January, on January 19th, we had Tremors. Now, what a brilliant little film. 
And it's great to see that people still hold it in high regard as a minor cult classic. Guys, any fans of that? Oh, yes, yes. In fact, recently I've been watching all the Tremors because there's six of them. Six? And I've managed to get to four. (laughs) I've managed to get to four so far. They're actually making number seven now, aren't they? No way. Are they? Yeah, the the guys will be there watching uh, it. The actor whose name I can't remember, who was the dad in Family Ties. Uh, shared something on social media recently about it. They make the I think they've had to pause it because obviously the coronavirus, etc. But uh, yeah, they're actually making part seven now. So how far back in the series did Fred Ward drop out? About the same time as Kevin Bacon. Well, no, I think Kevin Bacon didn't even turn up for the second one, did he? <laughs> no, Fred Ward was in the second one. It is a cool little film. Oh, I love it. I, I really do it like is. dramas. Hayden, have you seen that one? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, I do know there's a TV show. No from... way. <laughs> 2003 it's got 13 episodes and no more so i can't speak to how good it was <laughs> well i did not know that but yet i definitely check out the original tremors hayden it's, it was one of these films that I, I don't think it got a cinema release in the uk it was kind of like straight to vhs but it was one of those ones where you know, it looked a bit corny from the cover but it's actually a really good film really really entertaining so next up uh, leaving january we've got february 16th Nightbreed. Now, I've done an episode of Wrong Wheel with James Hancock where we discuss Clive Barker's Hellraiser trilogy, and I've got a feeling that the, his 1990 adaptation of his own book, Cabal, will feature possibly on a future episode of Film 89. So I'm not going to say anything more about that film unless you guys have anything to add. Oh, just to say that I think it's Clive Barker's best. I, I enjoyed it more than Hellraiser. He has got something of a kind of cult following. Bear in mind how successful he, he was with you know the first Hellraiser film, film three years before that uh, i think nightbreed was one of his films that you know it kind of got a bit of um studio interference and, and the final version he put out in in theaters wasn't his his kind of chosen cut of the film it's a lot lighter than um than, oh, oh yeah god uh, yeah hellraiser and for that i think it's a it's a lot more entertaining hellraiser is well and i'm not going to say slog because it's a really really good film but you've got to really be in the mood for it i think it's not uh, in any way there's no light tone at all to it is it no it's not. no i agree the 2nd of March then, we've got one of the big releases of the year. Neil and I have done episodes on John McTiernan's previous two films, Predator and Die Hard, two undisputed masterpieces. Now, as much as McTiernan's career took a nosedive later on, his next film, The Hunt for Red October, for me certainly is up there with his best. And I'll say it now, it is definitely one of the best films of 1990. Are we agreed, guys? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I'm um, a little bit older than you guys, a I don't bit. think that a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you had the same sense of excitement when the Hunt for October was released at the time. It was, you know, the new film, as you said, by John McTiernan. and he was one of the most exciting directors of the late '80s and '90s. And that was around the time when I was really coming, you know, to the fore when it comes to watching films. And I say the film doesn't let us down. It's a very different beast to Die Hard. It's an action film which relies as much on brains as it does brawn. It's about um, highly intelligent and motivated people playing high-stakes poker on the high seas. It's got a fantastic cast. Alec Baldwin has never been better, I think. That and Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, which was the following year, is the pinnacle of Alec Baldwin's career. And it's a very un-Russian accented Sean Connery. He could never do accents, could he? No. Mm-hmm. And and then, he, of course, supporting him, got James Earl Jones, he got Scott Glenn, Sam Neill, um, Tim Curry, Josh Ackland, all on the top of the games, you know. It's one of those films, isn't it, that pretty much everyone you speak to adores that film or at least holds it in some sort of reverence, but it it's not one that comes up in conversation quite Neil, often. It's one... you've hit the nail on the head. Now, right, you and me, obviously, we used to work together and we'd spend many a night shift talking endlessly about films like Predator and Die Hard. 
But did we ever have a conversation about Hunt for Red October? You know, McTiernan's third big film, not counting his first film, Nomads. Yeah, I don't think we did, to be honest. No. Like I say, it's, it's one of those films that if it was on like sort of like um, like a film four type thing tonight and you were sat down just at home, you'd think, oh, I haven't seen that for ages. And about halfway through the film, you'd think, why did I watch this more often? I know. But it's, it's, it's never of, on, though, is it? It's one of those films. It's, it's, it's not. never on. Yeah. No, you, yeah, you're right, Rich. It's not, is it? It's like Die Hard and Predator would be shown on TV endlessly. Hunt for Red October, certainly, you know, in my experience, it wasn't. But I think that... Um, I think it's I think more the man, ambitious. Yeah, uh, well, Predator and Die Hard. I know Die Hard was kind of a loose adaptation, but, you know, Hunt for Red October was a full-on adaptation. No, you, you mentioned it being Alec Baldwin's one of his best roles. I think it was actually his first major role. Well, he was in uh, Beetlejuice beforehand. Oh, yeah. yeah. Working yeah. Girl. Of course. And he did, and he did in The Shadow as well by that stage? No, no, The Shadow. Well, was, no, The Shadow was after this. Two years yeah. later. Is it? Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, it, it is a fantastic film. And as you and me have proven, Neil, it's just one that just doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah, strange one, isn't it? Yeah. But like, 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 um, like Steve was saying, it's one of those films. It approaches it approaches this subject matter quite sort of methodically. It's not you know sort of guns blazing type action, but yeah, it's still a sort of it's a wild ride to watch as well, isn't it? Yeah, and as much as I like Harrison Ford, like we all do, I still think that Alec Baldwin's version of Jack Ryan is probably the one that's most faithful to the books. I think Chris Pine will always win that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we're not including Ben Affleck either, are we? Or John oh. Krasinski. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Ben Affleck was as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he yeah, was, he was yeah. some of all fears. He well, was. Jack series, I, the Jack Ryan's Ryan series, I've not watched that, but apparently it is very good. I've it's seen really the first good. series, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think that's that we needed more, didn't we? We need we, 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 um, Alec Baldwin, we could have done with um, another one with him in. You know, I've listened to a podcast about that film recently, and I can't remember the reason why he didn't yeah, do the next film. Picking Ford over Baldwin, which you know at the time might have seemed like a good move, but like Steve said, Baldwin didn't put a foot wrong in the first film. But it was the, the thing that... is, he's not an action hero, is he? No, no but it, that's the thing. There was a Jack, Jack Ryan, Ryan character. Not an action hero. Yeah, that's right. He's more you know intellectual, and he's in, in a way as, as Baldwin showed in in that film, he's more of a geek, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's, he's more of the, he, not not on the same sort of ilk as a John McClane, but he's sort of very much in a sort of every man who gets thrust into situations. He's not the type of guy who you know sort of turns up and instantly you think this is a Bond or Bourne type figure. Mm. You know, although he's played traditionally by sort of like leading men who, you know, sort of cut the sort of stride when they're doing things. The actual character himself is like, like I don't know which one of you said is somebody of us talking. It's quite a sort of geeky character because he's an analyst, isn't he? He is, yeah, that's right. It was about that time that Harrison Ford just made a succession of films where he just shouted at people to give him back his... <laughs> Give me back my family. <laughs> Where are my family? And that yeah. was pretty much it. From about 1988 till about 1996, Harrison Ford <laughs> is in a state of perpetual sort of dis- dismay about the loss of his family. <laughs> yeah, or, or shouting at terrorists on Air Force One. Yeah, just lots of yeah. pointing. Lots of pointing. <laughs> yeah. So moving on then through March 1990, March 23rd, you've got Pretty Woman, which turned out to be the third highest grossing film of the year, making $463 million on a budget of just $14 million. This was a huge film that year. It launched Julia Roberts into superstardom, and I think, Rich, it instilled in you a lifelong dream to become a high-class <laughs> prostitute. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind, but I was just about to say the very same thing to Neil. <laughs> I, was, I, was wait, I was waiting to say, over to Rich, this is one of his favorite. <laughs> oh, yeah. So anyway, like, Aiden, like what do you think of Pretty Woman? <laughs> I haven't seen it. Actually, I think I have. I had think I have seen it in my younger days. I don't know why or how I came across it, 
I haven't seen it since, and I can't tell you anything about it. I, I will say that a lot in this episode, by the way. <laughs> you are showing your age there because every one of us at some stage has had to sit through on a date night. Yes. Yes. Oh, I, yes. I don't. I, I got to be honest. I'm quite envious of the fact that you haven't had to. Well, I'm just wondering that we're, we're up to what March 23, I think, pretty when we came out. That's after Nuns on the Run came out, and I'm surprised we haven't touched on it yet. Well, it doesn't matter, Hayden, because as soon as Rich says anything about it, I'm just going to edit it out anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking at the poster now. It's It's got, from now on, it's every nun for himself across the top. <laughs> it's got uh, Robbie Coltrane in it. I know him as Hagrid from the Harry Potter series. Absolutely. Oh, my um, God. He's really showing his age. <laughs> Over in the UK, we would say Robbie Coltrane. Well, he was Cracker, and he also used to do the adverts for Purcell and Washing Powder. <laughs> I can remember him from the sort of comic street. Uh, yeah, comic true. Channel 4 series, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And of course, he did make a couple of guest appearances on the young ones and that, those type of things at Ben Elton shows, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was in. He was in that sort of alternative comedy um, troupe um, lineup, wasn't he? Well, he. Uh, I think he was Samuel Pepys as well in an episode of Black Out of Two or Black Out of Three, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was. Yeah. Right, Hayden. Look, as much as you know, we all know that Richie wants to be the only person on any podcast ever to go into depth about nuns on the run. You have taken the conversation away from Pretty Woman, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> It is, you know, it was the third highest grossing film of 1990. I actually, confession time, I actually took my mum to see it as well. You know, I was watching a, uh, uh, an interview this week with Al Pacino, and he said that before they made the film, he actually did a reading for it with um, Julia Roberts. Well, how would that have worked, yeah, instead of Richard Gere? I know. Yeah, Because hmm. it, did, it did kind of relaunch Richard Gere's career as well, didn't it? Oh, yeah, massively, yeah. God, yeah. He'd sort of done this sort of American Gigolo type, you know, films and stuff like that. And so the mid eighties, he dropped off. You know, he was, you know, officer and gentleman that type of thing. He was like the big star, wasn't he? Mm. But he had sort of kind of dropped off the radar just a little bit. I don't know how much of that was by choice or how much of that was hamster or gerbil related. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hayden, if you don't know what that's referring to, right? Just Google Richard Gere hamster story. Was it hamster? Or, was it a hamster or gerbil? Was it oh. gerbil? Yeah, maybe, maybe been a gerbil. Yeah. It's actually like one of the world's greatest urban myths, isn't it? Right? It is, yeah. It's like it's, it's <laughs> up there with print, with Prince having a rib removed as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, I've got it open. Richard Gere and the gerbil. Um, whoa, okay, whoa, then, no, whoa, we don't have any actions taken against show. us now. Family family hang on a show. sec, hang on a sec, hang on a sec, boys. I just I just want to bring a guest in. Yes, this is uh, Herbert Wachowski, uh, lawyer for Film Eighty Nine. <laughs> just to confirm, that's an urban legend, and we do not endorse or believe those rumours. Thank, thank you, Herbert. Thanks. Yeah, worst accent I've ever heard. Well done. You? <laughs> so, moving on, thirtieth of March, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle phenomenon, which exploded pretty much in 1990, and it was everywhere. It was on T-shirts, lunchboxes. You just couldn't escape the heroes in the half shell. Guys, how do we adequately convey to young Hayden how big the turtles were in 1990? What the heck was that? Looked like sort of a big turtle in a trench coat. It was 
just it was massive, wasn't it? And and where I where I grew up, a small town in West Wales, we couldn't get the figures. You couldn't get the figures for love nor money. The local toy shop certainly didn't have the figures. You'd, you'd have to go all the way up to the big smoke of Cardiff to 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 get to get the toys. But genuinely, they they were of the earliest that I can remember of the toys, whereby it was everyone in demand for Christmas, and and it was on the news that the stock was was running out, kind of thing. It was it kind of came off the back of of Mass of the Universe, Thundercats. And then, and then it was sort of turtles, and I think that that was it was kind of the last cartoon um, and figure series that I remember being. I think ju- just as it came out, I was sort of going out of having figures, but I just caught a bit of turtles. You know, I, I had a couple of figures, and well, I was nine, obviously, um, and I was just sort of started to move away from figures, but I did get caught up in that a bit, and it was the last. Um, it was the last one that I sort of really collected as as a child. What obviously we had the cartoon over here first, but it was dubbed Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles over here due to the British censorship. And I remember getting um I didn't go to see the film in the cinema, but my um my uncle got hold of possibly the dodgiest pirate copy of the film. I remember it being so dark, uh, as in the 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 the, the screen colour so dark you could barely see anything. When I then watched the 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 official version of it, even even at nine ten years old, I remember noticing how heavily edited it was for the UK release, and that it actually wasn't. I, I don't remember it being that much clearer on screen either. There was an awful lot of um, stuff going on you couldn't really make out. But I remember being really really impressed with um, with the animatronics and and being it was the cartoon made real. It, it you know at, at that age it really kind of. Um, it really sort of captivated me. I, I don't. I've, I've not seen it for probably twenty five years, and I and I have no intention of watching it again. I can't imagine it holds up at all. But it was certainly that sort of. We'd had Master of the Universe with Dolph Lundgren, which was which was shite, and and this was kind of the first time that we saw our cartoon well, of of that generation. You see your cartoons come to life, and it was actually um, looking at my uh, details on it. It was the highest grossing independent film of the time, and it was it wasn't until Blair Witch in nineteen ninety nine that it was knocked off that that point, and. Corey Feldman played Donatello, which I never knew. Yeah, you see, it was independent, but I think it was picked up for distribution by New Line. I've always been under the impression that New Line is kind of under the, the Warner Brothers umbrella, but I certainly I had no idea that it was an independent release. But yeah, yeah when, when you say about that, the memories of a pirate copy there, Rich, I, I've got very similar memories of seeing a pirate copy of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but I don't know if that was before or after the release because I definitely saw it in the cinema. But what I can't remember is I know for a fact that it was it was heavily edited for VHS and, and home video, but I, I don't think it was for theatrical release. And obviously, unlike the cartoon, it retained this title of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles instead of everything else in the UK that was Turtles related, which the ninja was dropped and replaced with hero which yeah. just always annoyed the hell out of me and any sort of reference to Michelangelo's nunchucks were removed because bizarrely yeah. back in you know the 1980s certainly Neil and Steve you'll remember this well any reference to nunchucks in a film or you know like Thundercats when Panthro had his for whatever reason um, probably because kids like me would end up you know, getting their friends' dads to make steel nunchucks for them, and they would have fights in their friends' garden. And obviously, you know, yeah. they are quite dangerous. But yeah, nunchucks. Following on from the Mary Whitehouse thing, the video nasty issue, nunchucks were kind of like outlawed. Not only you know to, to owners' weapons, but they were actually you know prohibited from being depicted on television, film, or, or and certainly in kids' cartoons. But yeah, the, the turtles—they were massive. Obviously, you know the Batman phenomenon. Tim Burton's Batman a year before was just huge, and the merchandising just you know was was ramped up to the max. And then you know following on the next year, I think Turtles was the big thing. Following on from Batman a year before, I think it was actually Batman that had sort of um, pushed the envelope a little bit for the Turtles film to be made because mm. I think they were looking for comic book properties and stuff like that. And that's what we sort of look at it as the the kids animated show. 
But we forget it was actually quite a popular comic as well, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 it was. Well, the, the, the film itself was more faithful to the comic than, than obviously what the animated series was, wasn't it? And it was kind of yeah. like they were trying to strike that balance between targeting an animated series towards children about about Ninja Turtles. You know, it was kind of worlds colliding and how do they make that sort of appropriate for, for children in, in such obviously uh, the UK and Europe where, where it was also sort of heavily edited, um, kind of meeting up because it almost, I, I should imagine watching those episodes now, they're going to lose an awful lot from from story and everything when they've got to edit out almost you know with one of the main characters and the weapons that they use it it, it just seems ridiculous you've implied that i don't really that, that i'm a stranger to the turtles but i've been racking my brain for a couple of days because i have this weirdly fond memory of that first movie and maybe the animated series from when i was a kid and i don't know maybe it's because i had a couple of older brothers they were they're up to 10 years older than me so they probably got into it at the time and I'm just looking at, you know, screenshots from the animated series. And I kind of have as fond a memory of this as I do of, of the um, that Batman animated series. So it's not lost on me, even though I was negative three and still am negative three, according to our new nicknames. Um, <laughs> you know, seeing a couple of clips when I've been doing a bit of research and everything like that, I, I think that whilst the film itself probably would not hold up to any kind of uh, watching now where you gain any real enjoyment out of it. It was one of it was one of Jim Henson's last projects. And um, and and that, as I say, the 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 animatronics used to to bring the turtles' faces to life, I think, were was was certainly very 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 well done. Yeah, if you look if you look at the sort of later sort of turtle release, I mean, the the last film I think was um, purely CGI, and they look fucking awful. In fact, they yeah. look terrifying. They look terrifying. They look like ninja terrapins, not ninja turtles. Mm. But yeah, I mean, like like Rich was saying, it was literally something a cartoon character jumping off the screen, wasn't it? Yeah. Right, guys, the next one. It's, I think, yeah, it's the second sequel in this list, and it's one of the big ones. April 6th, Ernest goes to jail. <laughs> right, the only thing of note that I can say about this that, unbelievably, is the fourth of the films charting the adventures of a bumbling bank janitor called Ernest P. Worrell, and somehow, on the Wikipedia list of major theatrical releases of 1990, this is one of those films. I think they were bigger in America, weren't they? I think yeah. he was a he was a sort of like not, I'm not going to say a cult figure, but I think he was more adored figure over there, wasn't he? Was he more of a Norman, Norman Wisdom type character? Yeah, yeah Jim, Jim Varney, Jim Varney, yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, he was a bit like Pee Wee Herman at the time as yeah. well, wasn't he? They yeah, were all making that those kind of films. Am I right in thinking that Ernest had come from a TV show like Pee Wee? Yeah, he could have. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was saying that we weren't that familiar with, but it was something that for some reason would always show up in like the local sort of video store, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's the only film on this list from April. So fast forwarding then, which is quite apt, to the 25th of May, 1990, another one of our sequels, Back to the Future Part 3.
So, Rich, like me, you're something of a Back to the Future fan, is that right? Ah, oh, well, you just described me in a nutshell. I didn't say anything about your uh, wonderful facial hair, though. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the Future 3, the second sequel to, to my all-time favourite film. Anyone who's listened to this before will know I'm a Back to the Future fan. came out in um, May uh, 1990, and it was filmed back-to-back with Back to the Future Part 2. We'd, we'd had, in the November, at the end of Back to the Future Part 2, we'd had an extended trailer. Um, and, I, and, and I can remember, you know, it's one of those experiences. It's one of the earliest cinema experiences I remember, seeing Back to the Future 2 and, then, and Ghostbusters 2 one week and then the other. But, rem- but I remember waiting and not being able to wait for Back to the Future Part 3 to come out after watching that extended trailer at the end. I went to do it on opening weekend. We, we are going to cover Back to the Future, hopefully, at some point in the future. So I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep this brief. But basically, I think neither sequel can equal the the, the first film and um, but as much as i love the second film i would happily argue that this is probably a better sequel it echoes the first film by having the main story set in one time period uh, and on this occasion you've got doc brown as the main focus of the story and it culminates in a really satisfying end to the trilogy michael j fox and christopher lloyd their chemistry is absolutely effortless it's it's like they've been you know they've been they've been friends family for years and years and years you just it is completely effortless, and I think that bringing in uh, Mary Steenburgen worked really well, and and giving and giving totally fleshing out. When you think about the character of Doc Brown from the first two films, we learn little bits about him. Apart from being the, the person who creates the time machine, he doesn't do a huge amount. Do you know? He, there's, there's no there's no huge character development with him. Whereas this really makes him the center. If anything, Marty McFly is the is the supporting character in this film, and I think that you know taking our well loved characters, doing the the you know having the showing what showing what their ancestors were like, whilst riffing classic westerns, it absolutely it rounds off the trilogy so well, puts a stamp on the end of it that that it should never be remade. We should never have a sequel. That that is the end of it, and and for me, it makes the Back to the Future trilogy one of the most perfect trilogies around. Okay, so we've done we've done favorite trilogies, yeah. You'll have to excuse my lockdown adult brain. We did yeah, think, we have, yeah. yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Now, th- this was in my list, and aside from the original Star Wars trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Back to the Future, I would argue, is is certainly one of the most perfect trilogies for me, and and definitely one of my favourite. I'm not going to go too much into detail about this because hopefully, fingers crossed, Rich, you and me are going to be doing a Back to the Future episode quite soon. But one thing, guys, what Rich just mentioned there is, I know, I know, Superman and Superman Two were filmed back to back, but they were released two years apart and obviously the second film being finished hinged on the success of the first film but is this the first time that a second and third uh, sequel were filmed back to back I can't remember anything before this where this happened obviously then you add it on later on with the Matrix films and with you know the the, the Star Wars prequels but I think as far as I, I, I can remember this I is think the first it was as well I gotta be honest and I, I can remember it being a really sort of big thing that was sort of almost like a selling point for the second film was that they were making the third one at the same yeah. time like like Rich was saying you had that sort of sort of extended trailer at the end of uh, part two didn't you but it was like a sort of real sort of buzz created by it as well wasn't it I'm just looking now and there's quite a few of them even going back as far as the 30s where they made quite a few sequels back to back but yeah I think this is the first time that he was openly marketed selling this. point yeah 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 so that's Back to the Future 3, that's the third of our sequels. Uh, moving on to June 1st, 1990, Total Recall. Uh, for, for me, I can remember, I, I think this is one of the first serious conversations I ever had with Sky about film, um, which is good because we're going to round off, we're going to yeah. come back to a film that me and Rich, were, I think was our first conversation as well. Yes, yeah. But for me, this is a film that for so long, it's, it's getting the praise it deserves now, but for so long it was almost overlooked. It, I think a lot of people used to sort of class it in the same sort of ilk as The Running Man. 
for me, it's it's an almost perfect science fiction action film. Oh, so much better than The Running Man. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Which, funny enough, both adaptations, Running Man was an ad- adaptation of a, a Stephen King book, albeit, what was his uh, pseudonym? Richard Steve? Martin. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously this was an adaptation of a, of a Philip K. Dick novella. But yeah, you know, this is a film that Neil and I have talked about endlessly. It's... It, oh, God. It's just magnificent. In fact, we've spoken very recently, haven't we, Steve, on the, um, we the did, Jerry yeah. Goldsmith episode. We did, And you know what I said then, I remember, because... This, you know, I remember going to see Back to the Future 3 in the cinema, but I, only the once, but Total Recall, I went to see four times because that's how impressed it was. This was a big one for me. I can remember seeing this um, about six months before it was released in Fangoria and thinking, because because they were sort yeah. of showing pictures of the mutant, it was um, uh, it was the guy who was in uh, Breaking Bad, uh, the, the brother-in-law, Dean... Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, you got a, yeah, you got, you got a lot of nerves showing your face around here. Yeah. Back Look, uh, Look who's we'll, talking. We'll but, Is it Dean Norris? <laughs> Dean Norris, yeah. I like, remember seeing that and thinking this was almost a horror film because it was in Fangoria and because the sort of imagery they were showing of the mutants and thinking that maybe this was more of a sort of horror film. But it's not, I mean, it's just out-and-out out action. But, you know, it's actually, all right, like you say, with Dick's works, you can interpret it every, any way you want, really. But, you know, it, mm. it's not on the same sort of level as, like, a sort of Blade Runner in this story form, but it's actually quite a sort of intriguing story, really, isn't it? Well, God, Neil, you say that, right? You know, I, I've, I've done an episode with James Hancock about Blade Runner, and I was openly acknowledging the fact that to a lot of people, myself included, there's a big there's, there's a big chunk of the argument against Blade Runner that it's a lot of style over substance. But it's just there, equal. isn't it? Yeah, it's just there. Presented it, the way it's yeah. The you know the story is it, it is a complex story and it leaves you with that end thing of yeah. was that all a dream? Was it? And it asks the audience to keep up as well, which is excellent. You mean? Yeah, it does. No, what I meant what what I, what I meant with that is if you look at Blade Runner, it's more a lot of it is open to interpretation. Whereas with Total Recall, it's more of a sort yes. of standard sort of storyline. I'd say, aside from the uh, the end into it, it's very much a beginning, middle, and end of the film, isn't it? Yeah, but I think when you've seen that ending, then and you th- and you left with that question, when you watch it a second time, it makes you look at it completely differently because you're like, well, at what point has he had his memory erased? The whole thing plays differently on a second viewing because yeah. of the way it ends. Yeah, it's 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 magnificent, and it's the second big you know American film from Paul Verhoeven after RoboCop. You know what an amazing way to follow it up. You know it's just unfortunate, and another film that we're going to come to later that after RoboCop and you know Ryan were begging Paul Verhoeven to make a sequel, he didn't feel ready to. You know the right script hadn't popped up, so he turned down RoboCop two and he took this film up, which, as you know, Neil. For a long time, that 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 kind of yeah. But again, me. with this, I mean, if you look at the sort of genius of the whole, I mean, this was a film that had been stuck in the phrase development hell for you know, I think since the late seventies, because I know Cronenberg was going to do it originally, wasn't he? Because yes, he's actually he was, the one yeah. that's credited with creating the the Quato character, isn't he? If you look at that, I think it had been through several several sort of directors' hands, but I stayed but I say with the guest of Verhoeven. I think Verhoeven and Arnold had sort of like got a bit of a sort of like a rep, you know, a good sort of rapport with each other because at one stage Arnold was looking to do Robocop, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, he was. Yeah, initially, um, you know, he was in the frame uh, until they realised that, you know, the practicalities of getting him in that suit. But yeah, uh, you, you know, and after he saw Robocop, he was really well, keen to Well, I think he was the Verhoeven. one that actually sort of pushed for Verhoeven to direct this, wasn't he? Because this is going back to the times now when Arnold was like a sort of major player in the films, in the film industry. And, you know, it was sort of deciding, you know, project-wise, who he wanted to work with rather than people coming to him. You know, he was actually, you know, approaching people to come and work with him, wasn't he? And again, with that, I mean, there was um, a, 
again, there was a third film, uh, sorry, a second film that Verhoeven and Schwarzenegger were supposed to do, The Crusade as well, weren't they? And that was a massive sort of, yes. they spent like 30 million on it. And the film got sort of pulled about two weeks before it started filming, didn't they? Right. Obviously, Total Recall, a film that, you know, the, the four of us kind of grew up with and love. Hayden, from the kind of different generation perspective, have you seen Total Recall? In films like Terminator and, and um, you know, Predator, he's great because he's playing a certain type. It actually took me a while to warm to his character in Total Recall because he's sort of playing a bit of an everyman at the start. And I just don't see him as an everyman. I don't think he pulls it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there when you say you don't view Arnold as an actor. I mean, I would, I could bore you all and name some later films that he's done where he has actually shown a little bit of acting prowess. But about this stage, it, it was more the personality. He was the cult of personality with Arnold. If you went mm. to watch an Arnold film, you knew you weren't going to see Hamlet, although he did try and do it in the, uh, the last action hero. But it was more... <laughs> not, not to be... But <laughs> but I think with with Arnold, it's it's almost like um, the sort of same sort of thing that The Rock's got. No, um, where it's more the sort of cult of personality. You just you go and watch an Arnold film, and you just accept you're going to see Arnold Schwarzenegger in a film. It doesn't matter. Sorry, what yeah, playing, yeah, you could be playing a neurosurgeon or you know a construction worker. It's still always going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Occasionally, what they like to do is just in the background, just put like a weightlifting bench or a dumbbell in his business apartment, and that explains why he looks like a fucking Greek god. <laughs> and, you just, and you just get on with it. You know, at the yeah. beginning of Total Recall, the beginning of Total Recall, he's making a protein shake. Obviously, that explains it. Move on. Yeah, yeah. So, talking about moving on, another sequel, 8th of June, another 48 hours. So, Walter Hill directs a sequel to his own 1982 action comedy starring Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. Now, I saw this one probably about a year or so after its uh, cinema release, so I, I can't remember much about it, I'm afraid. Although, I do remember the original being a really good film. Um, anyone got anything to say about this one? I gotta yeah, be honest. It's, it's like the first one, but without the jokes, I think, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, bitter disappointment, this one. Because yeah. growing up, 48 hours, the original film growing up was almost a sort of staple for me as in like one of the, you know, we all had our own sort of films we taped off TV where you'd sort yeah, of edit, yeah. edited out the adverts. 48 Hours was one of those films. It was, know? it was. It was there with Beverly Hills Cop and Down and Out in Beverly Hills and all the rest of it. There was all these, there was certain films that seemed to be on all at the same time. All um, Beverly over Hills. Christmas. Yeah, Beverly Hills, yeah. And to- <laughs> Total Recall was one of those. It's, th- it's one of my earliest memories of these films because they were obviously aimed at an older audience. I saw them, um, perhaps, I don't know, maybe sort of 95-ish, if sort of a few years later, when they were being shown on TV. And they'd be kind of 9, 10 o'clock um, in the school holidays kind of thing. And I, and I caught up with them then. And I've got distinct memories of 48 Hours, FX, The Art of Illusion, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, and a couple of the others then, all that were seen to be shown sort of late at night um, during the mid-90s, and that's where I found them. Yeah, but like Steve was saying, another 48 hours. I don't know how much of this was just a case of, oh, look, Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy are available. Let's get this going. Yeah, yeah. It seemed to be, it was lacking, it was definitely lacking one of the chemistry and, the, like like Steve was saying, the jokes and the humour of the, the original. Yeah, and I think, wasn't this kind of a roundabout the tale? Now, obviously, Hayden, like Neil mentioned, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, a lot of the time during his career... Uh, certainly at the peak, which was around about 1990, 1991, you know, although it was a huge peak that lasted for years, 
he was a superstar, the likes of which we hadn't seen for a long time. You can say exactly the same thing about Eddie Murphy. In like the early 80s, around about 82, 83, when Eddie Murphy's stand-up kind of peaked and, you know, um, his stand-up routines like Raw... Delirious. Yeah, Delirious. They were absolutely huge. This was a comedy routine that had a theatrical release. It was huge. And from that point then, studios were like, right, we need to get this guy in films. You know, we need... And Richard Pryor had a similar kind of thing. Yeah. But certainly not to the same level that Eddie Murphy did. Eddie Murphy was a fucking superstar. Oh, I think Ed, was, Ed, Eddie Murphy was a lot luckier as well because a lot of his earlier work was based on sort of Saturday Night Live sort of contacts, wasn't it? Because you yeah, had yeah. trading places with Dan Aykroyd and, you know, I say he, he did a film as well, didn't he, with uh, Dudley Moore, Best Defence. And, you know, it was all, there seemed to be a lot of sort of like more established comedians that sort of accepted that Murphy was breaking through and wanted to be seen with him, I think, a lot of the time yeah. as well. And unfortunately then, you know, in the 90s, we started to see his decline. But when his star was at, it, at its peak, you know, in the 80s, there, there were few actors on the planet that could sort of command roles and, 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 and paychecks like Eddie Murphy could. He was just one of the biggest, most bankable stars on the planet for quite a few years. And again, like you were saying, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy was Eddie Murphy, was he? In pretty much every film, if, if, yeah, you, look, yeah. if you look, if you look, sort of Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, originally that's a Stallone film. He comes into it, and it's just more the sort of personality of Axel Foley. Just it's just Eddie Murphy, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like you say, trading places. You know, if we go through to the Golden Child, you know, although the character's got a different name, it is essentially Eddie Murphy wisecracking, isn't it? And it's the very very similar characters throughout, like, isn't it? Yeah, but we, you know, we we loved it and we lapped it up. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm not not knocking it in any shape or form. I mean, like you say, it was great to see last year when he came back with Dolomite. I mean, I'd love to see Eddie Murphy making sort of like you know big hit movies again. Yeah, but we we, we this period was very much the time of vehicles for stars, wasn't it? And that's it was. you know, it's you know, and and Eddie Murphy is is definite evidence of that. Like, like Rich was saying there, it is. This is a time when we've already mentioned Harrison Ford, we've already mentioned Arnold, we've already mentioned uh, Eddie Murphy. This was a time when I don't think it happens that often now where you go and see a film because Brad Pitt's in it or you go and see a film because Tom Cruise is in it. These were the days when basically a poster could be virtually blank and just say Harrison Ford or Arnold Schwarzenegger and people would go. I think it was the the last sort of age of the movie star, if you like. Yeah. So moving on to June 15th, this next film. I haven't got much to say about the film itself, but thinking about it, this is one of those films that when I think back to 1990, this this is one of those films that at the time was just, you couldn't get away from it. It was everywhere. It was heavily marketed. And that's Dick Tracy. Now, it was one of the big hitters of the summer season, directed by a star, Warren Beatty, featuring a pretty stellar cast, many of whom were under pretty heavy Oscar-winning makeup. It's certainly one of the most unique films of the time. And like I say, that you know, the marketing took advantage of the really garish, distinctive costume design and production design. And it's certainly a film that plays to his comic book origins, but I haven't seen it probably since it was released, which I did see in the cinema. So all I've got really are 30-year-old memories of the film, which are quite vague. But what are more clear are the memories of how big a film Dick Tracy was in the summer of 1990. How didn't it get a sequel? I don't know because you know it was. Um, I, I remember that there was um, on sort of school holidays morning t- children's TV. I remember at the time that the film came out that they were running classic sort of uh, cartoons of Dick Tracy. So obviously, yeah. with the film coming out, it was about because it, I don't think the character was particularly well known in the UK. So it was about obviously introducing the character to kids, and and and, and I loved it. Uh, you know, I, I, I loved the cartoon, and then yeah, went to the rest of the film, and I had it on video. 
Uh, it was. I, I, re- I remember. I've got. A, I've got really fond memories of the film. It had the. You know, the, there was the little boy who went on to be in. Uh, it was Peter Pan's son in Hook. I don't think he did anything else after that. It seemed to be. It, it was really. It was as you say. It was really, really unique, and it seemed to be a really faithful adaptation. As memory serves me, I, I, I've not revisited it. I, I, it's one of those films, probably more so than the Turtles, where I think to myself. I'd probably be less inclined to revisit this because it would probably, whereas I would expect Turtles to be a bit shit if I watched it now, if I was to watch Dick Tracy, it would kind of, I'd be concerned it would harm my memory of it kind of thing because it probably wouldn't be as good watching it again. Yeah, I only I saw it about two or three years ago and I have to say it it does stand up. It, it's really, really well made. It looks fantastic. The um, cinematography is Victoria Storaro, you know. They spend yeah. a lot of money on the production of that film. It, the 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 colours in it, it looks like a cartoon, you know. Yeah, it does. And, yeah, I, I um, think I think because of that exact reason, Steve. Now I don't think I could go back and watch Dick Tracy now and sort of separate myself from the nostalgia of it just being a film, which for me that kind of represented nineteen ninety. I think Hayden, if you actually went and watched the film now, obviously given you know your huge knowledge and love for comic book films, you might have a good perspective on you know how this film holds up as both a film but obviously an adaptation of, of, a, of a comic book and cartoon character because it is kind of like a, a, a cartoon come to life I'm disappointed in my, the fact that I haven't seen the movie, but I also don't know a whole lot about the comic strip. I don't know if you guys have read any of the comics. I, you know, you guys are all you guys are all alive in the '30s, right? Yeah, <laughs> he's kind of like a you know he's a hard-boiled sort of film noir detective, but you know the film is anything but noir. Like Steve said, it's really colourful, it's really gearish. You know, I just can't much much like. The original Tron in 1982 is a film that doesn't look like any other film because of the way it was shot and because of the, the, the kind of techniques they used to make the film. I think you can put Dick Tracy in the same sort of category. You know, maybe there were a few films that followed, like that Brad Pitt film, Cool World. In a way, it probably does look a lot like Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 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 a, in a certain way, but it's still a very unique film that just doesn't look like any other film I can recall. 
Just just going back to Rich's question about why there was never a sequel, I can't remember the exact specifics about it, but it's because of a legal sort of wrangling. Warren Beatty owns the rights to Dick Tracy, but I think he only owns the rights to the film version, and he was trying to make a TV series, right. and then uh, whatever comic corporation owns the rights to the TV series got into like a sort of legal battle, and I think it might be settled now, but I think it w- went on for like five, six, maybe even ten years plus, and that's why this sort of delay happened, And it, but by the time it sort of got wrestled and wrangled throughout the courts, the momentum had just been lost for it. Yeah, I might, I might be wrong on that, but I know it's something to do with Warren Beatty and legal rights to it. You know, if that was now, that's franchise written all over it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Of yeah, yeah. It, oh, yeah. It, it did. What, it, it won Oscars, didn't it? It won Academy Awards as well. Yeah, yeah. It, the yeah. thing is, it, I think it cost about 47 million and it made 162 worldwide, which is that's only three times the budget mm-hmm. and factored in how much it must have cost to market this film because. This was one of the most heavily marketed films I, I I can recall in that year. So the marketing budget, which isn't factored into the production budget, must have taken a you know a hell of a chunk you know out of any subsequent profits the film made. So it probably wasn't that big a success overall. So you've just yeah, mentioned the marketing there. I just remember how how much I loved the posters. Yeah, they, they're they fantastic. Were they were absolutely brilliant. Yeah, they I remind think... me of the um, um, Batman, you know, um, the year before, and then the uh, Jurassic Park style, you know that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, like a badge almost. Yeah, yeah it's minimalist. It's, it's minimalist. Then, you say that, Steve. You know, the the um, just the actual Dick Tracy poster that I'm you know, I'm looking at now looks in many ways similar to the Jurassic Park poster. It's got a you know a circle in the background, the Dick Tracy character with a Tommy gun, which is just position where the T Rex would be, and then you've got a Dick Tracy sort of cartoon font underneath. Yeah, I was gonna say again, it's another film that almost benefits, well, definitely benefits from Batman being made because Batman was such yeah. a sort of no one wanted to see comic book films, and then Batman came out, and suddenly everyone wanted to make comic book films. So I think it was something that Beatty has tried, tried doing since the early 80s. I think he'd owned the rights for that long, like. Yeah. So June was quite a bit of a packed month, along with July, you know, when, you know, and, and certainly a lot of the sequels started coming, you know, thick and fast. Next on the list of sequels we've got, Steve, I think this is the third time that this film has come up on the podcast. Obviously, we've discussed it in our Joe Dante episode. And again, on the recent Jerry Goldsmith episode. But Steve, is there anything else we've not yet said about Gremlins 2, The New Batch? Oh, I, I mean, Gremlins 2 is a fantastic film. You know, um, when the first film came out, Spielberg, I think, was expecting a small horror film. And when he saw the... the it, what, what people say is when he saw the final result, he was really, really surprised because it's it's such an uproarious send-up of horror. Two is not a sequel as such. It's a send-up of the first film. You know, they've changed the setting from small-town America to corporate America, and there's a 90s-era Donald Trump character, Daniel Clamp, but he's not a villain. He's someone who we can just happily poke fun of like Trump was back then. And it works, you know. The first half is like a plethora of jokes about corporate America, but in the second half, the film just comes to life. It's mad, it's zany, it's totally over the top. we got flying gremlins, spider gremlins, fruit gremlins, a gremlin cougar that's trying to seduce Billy... It's a great homage to Rambo in there. You know, for me, it's the great of the two films simply because it disregards all of the boundaries, you know. As um, the brain um, gremlin says, now, was that civilised? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilised. And I think that sums up the film perfectly. So it's Joe Dante making a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, it is, yes. With a bit of Hulk Hogan chucked in for good measure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, wait, who stopped the movie? <laughs> <laughs> 
I got fond memories of this film because it was the first time I ever saw two films back to back, like a double bill. Now it wasn't an intended double bill, but I remember going into the the Queen Street Odeon with my friends, uh, kind of early afternoon to see Gremlins Two. We came out and immediately went back to the box office and bought tickets for Back to the Future Three and went in to watch that. What a day! Yeah, what a day that was. Great day. It's it's a film that for me when I first saw it, I can remember being sort of slightly sort of not disappointed, but taken aback, thinking this is just silly. And the th- the thing is, when you look at like Gremlins, it's a film that you approach thinking it's going to be silly, and it's actually quite sort of like 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 Steve was saying, in some certain parts where you think, "Hang on, this is really dark." And then you get that sort of great bit about there uh, with uh, Phoebe, what's her name? I can't remember her name. Phoebe, Phoebe Cates. Cates. Phoebe Cates. Thank you. Sort of talking about why she doesn't like Christmas anymore, and it's like some of the darkest humour you've ever sort of you know yeah. as a child. And then I can remember when I saw Gremlins too, thinking, "Oh, this is just a bit of a mess." But then as the years have gone on, every time I see this film, it's like, this is fucking genius. Like it, was, say, it's, it's, it, was, it was meta and it was ahead of its time. Yeah, and it's like sort of Dante, like you said, I mean, he, he went on to do Looney Tunes films, didn't he? But, you know, it's sort of Dante sort of just having fun and just thinking like, you know, how much more, you know, how, how far can I push this, you know? And like Steve was saying, it's great that it sort of almost sends up the original film, doesn't it? Where the people are saying, well, hang on, what about if you feed a, you know, a Mogwai after midnight? Well, it's going to be midnight somewhere, you know, and it's all things like that. And there are little sort of holes that you could pick in it, but it's like, it's just an incredibly fun film. Yeah, the film, the first film is not sacred at all in this, because even uh, Phoebe Cates, um, you know, she's talking about how her father died on Christmas and how she she starts to say something in the um, second film and the characters they just, cut her, it off. They just roll their eyes there. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like you were saying about the Donald Trump character, I'm just thinking, could this could this be a script for Gremlins 3? Gremlins in the White House. <laughs> talk about doing a third one for quite a while now, wasn't they? So that's Gremlins 2, and yet again, a week later, June 22nd, another sequel. And for me, uh, you know, I say Dick Tracy was one of the films that reminded me most of 1990. Well, this film, for me, was 1990, and this was just my complete and utter obsession. Now, it's no secret to those who know me, the Paul Verhoeven's 1987 film Robocop is my favourite film, much like Back to the Future is is Richie's favourite film. So when news of a sequel arrived in late 89, early 1990 a kind of fire of excitement was lit in me that just grew and grew and even though that now after 30 years of hindsight it's not a film that I have much love for back in 1990 in the run-up to his summer release I kind of became obsessed with it you know I'd regularly ride my bike several miles to a, a the only local news agent near me that stocked the US science fiction magazine Starlog and much like you mentioned Neil Fangoria you know mag- American magazines like Starlog and Fangoria would would kind of give us glimpses and previews of films in, in a way that, that you know there was no kind of British equivalent at the time what are YouTube then Aiden no there was no internet then <laughs> no so you know I would literally go out of my way to kind of just gain you know glimpses of, of these films and in particular this film in preview articles they ran on not just robocop 2 but kind of like the slew of other films that i was salivating for that summer and then when i finally saw it months later unfortunately i was too young to see it in the cinema so i had to make do with the you know the quite heavily censored uk vhs release it turned out to be it was a grave disappointment probably because i'd built the film up so much in my mind helped by the fact that the trailer for the film made it look far better than the final film we were delivered about a year ago, we gave this city Robocop. Ready for duty, partner? Nothing I'd rather do. I think he's worked out pretty well. Have a seat. This is a bust. But things have become a little rougher out there. 
This unit needs millions of dollars in parts. You see, Robocop's off warranty. He's one of mine, and I want him back on his feet. Oh. I believe that Murphy's case was unusual, but not unique. We can find someone else, someone to whom the prospect might even be desirable. And now, we need a law enforcement unit capable of meeting the enemy on his own ground. She's screaming psychotic, sir. Well, we aren't planning to build a toy. I'm carrying enough firepower to get the job done. I got good news for you. You're gonna have a chance for immortality. With great pleasure, I give you Robocop 2. Ah, uh, yes. Things will be a lot quieter with this boy around. That thing is a killer! Kane! Let's step outside. You! You're obsolete! Behave yourselves! And as I've covered in the piece I wrote a few years back for the site about Robocop 2, it was the victim of the 1988 writer's strike, which meant that his script development was severely hampered along with all sorts of other behind-the-scenes issues which you can read about in the article. Ultimately, the film is nowhere near the masterpiece that its predecessor was. The script has got all sorts of issues. For me, the biggest problem are the performances. Peter Weller and Nancy Allen's performances are just really off, and they always have been to me. It's kind of like as if they're giving you a hollow script read-through as opposed to them just really trying to get back into the characters from where they left off three years previously in the first film. You know, there are far worse sequels out there. And the final dust-off between Robocop and his successor, Robocop 2, is pretty cool with some you know great go-motion effects from Phil Tippett. But given how great the first film is, for me, it is just such a shame that this first sequel and then the subsequent franchise as a whole just never recaptured anywhere near the same magic of the original. And one of the biggest problems for me was the fact that they dropped Basil Polidurus, the composer, and went with Leonard Rosamund. You know, they say how much, as we discussed, uh, Steve, with Stephen Simpson about film scores recently, how much a film score adds to a film. And when you get the film, the, the film score as wrong as they did, the score for Robocop 2 is just one of many things that hamstrung it. That It was just a huge obsession for me, which ultimately turned into a big disappointment, but has also got a hell of a lot of kind of nostalgia for me about being back there in 1990, just eager to watch this film. And it's something that I, a kind of a level of excitement that I've not had until the recent Avengers films. It's, it's a film that you've implored me to watch again. I've literally seen this film once. I could also make a little bit of a sort of sneaky admission. I saw it in the cinema, even though I'm only a year older than you. You bastard. I was a, I was, I was a very tall child. I was six foot, but I was so like, Literally, I just thought I'm going to try it. And uh, me and a friend of mine went. My friend got sort of questioned about his age. And I said, oh, it's all right, he's with me. And they went, let us in. And I can remember, just like you say, I absolutely adore the first film. And being so bitterly disappointed. How old would I have been then? I think I was about 14, 15. And I can remember thinking about halfway through, I might just go. I might just leave. And it was, Mm. you know, that's something I've done in later years. But especially at that age, to actually consider leaving a film halfway through. I've never watched it since. It's been on TV, it's been on DVD, it's been on Blu-rays. I've had the chance to watch it numerous times. And I just never, never bothered again with it. To me, it's like, 
And again, you know, I can remember someone saying, oh, yeah, Irving Kirshner was directing it. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be amazing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously, a couple of episodes back, we'd say nothing but positive things about one of our favourite films ever, The Empire Strikes Back. So we're, we're, doing, a, we're yeah. doing a sequel with the same man responsible for the sequel. Exactly. So we've got a guy who's... But again, you know, they, none of this was Irving Kirshner's fault. He was working with a script that... Literally, when Orion Pictures set the release date for Robocop 2 of June 22nd, 1990, they didn't have anything approaching a finished script. Now, when you're setting a release date before you've got a finished script, then you've got problems. The, the film was, from that point onwards, was kind of always doomed to fail. Nothing in the Robocop franchise has even been anything near as good as Robocop 2 since. You know, everything else has followed has been probably far worse than the first sequel. It's just one of those things that, yeah, it kind of broke my heart. I wanted it to be this, you know, worthy sequel. I didn't expect it to be as good, but I certainly expected it to be a lot better than the film that we received. I saw it for the first time when um, on home video, and I, I remember it, not because the film is any good or anything, but it was the first film I ever watched at home with surround sound. Ah, right. And as we were all watching, it was a gang of us watching it all together, and at one point, we all turned to the side because he came out of one speaker, and we were like, whoa, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> i got to say, there is some pretty fucking cool action in that film. There really is. But that is about but it. Like you said, the, yeah. the, the trailer was just amazing, wasn't it? You know, it was yeah, like, hey, God. let's step outside. And oh, yeah, I was just don't... like, fucking, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> How can you have, right, such a disappointing film and then you have little nuggets like that, that, that line. That's the only time in the film for me that Peter Weller delivers a line of dialogue in the same way that he delivered every line of dialogue, note perfect, in the first one. And it's, it's strange, it's strange, isn't it? Because like you say with Weller, I mean, he wasn't a, a well-known actor. I mean, he'd done Backroot Banzai, which is kind of a cult classic, but he wasn't a well-known actor before Robocop. And then when you sort of look at the behind the scenes thing about how he sort of like trained with mime artists and really got oh, yeah, really, yeah. really got into the character of Murphy, you know, pre-production, it's almost as if like you say, he's like as if he just turned up on the day and just said, Yeah, roll him and just just went for it, like, you know. It's yeah. really strange. Yeah. And whether it was a case of perhaps you know, perhaps we're being a bit sort of harsh on him, perhaps it was a case of just so much of a being such of a clusterfuck of a movie that it just threw him off and he just literally thought this is going to be bad no matter what I do, so why should I try? I think that's exactly it, Neil, and I think you've hit the nail on the head and that is a big part of the film's problems and also not having Paul Verhoeven directing. Yeah, it's just bizarre that you wouldn't bring Verhoeven back. I mean, like you, like you say, it's on paper, the, the, just the title Robocop, as Verhoeven said, you know, you look at that and just think that's going to be ridiculous. Why would I want to be involved with that? You know, but then there's so much mm. of sort of deeper sort of meanings and deeper sort of themes running throughout that film. I mean, you posted that great video the other week on uh, on uh, Twitter of Weller talking about the sort of background about uh, Robocop. And then, like you say, just to let it go like that, when you, you know, when Orion had this massive, potentially multi-franchise, you know, multi-film franchise on his hands, to sort of rush it, I know, I know they were doing it for financial reasons, but just to rush it like that just seems really strange, a really strange choice to make. Yeah. So moving on from Robocop to June 27th, uh, you've got another film. It's not a sequel, this one, but it is one of the biggest, uh, or certainly the, the anticipated films of the summer, was... Days of Thunder, Tony Scott directing Tom Cruise in a NASCAR sports drama. 
It's one of producing Uberduo, Don Simpson and Jay Bruckheimer's more bearable films for me personally. <laughs> and it, its main lead has a suitably absurd name in Cole Trickle. Cole you, Trickle. You, you said it's not a sequel, but it but it, it is, is top it is top it's top yeah. gun in a race car, isn't it? It's it is. Gun. It's top it's top gun in a fucking NASCAR. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And do, do, do you know what? That was another one of those things where I, I can imagine where they said to Tom Cruise, Don't get us wrong, Tom, this isn't gonna be top top gun in a race car. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, Okay. He was really intense about it. Yeah, because I don't want it to be Top Gun in the race car. They were like, no, it definitely won't be Top Gun in the race car. <laughs> Robert Duvall's Cruise missing. Control. Cruise Control. <laughs> oh. Which, again, is the, is the headline for a sequel, from not from this year, Speed 2 Cruise Control. That's right. Anytime, yeah. anytime oh, you put Cruise no. Control on a poster, it doesn't fucking sell it. Cruise Control is relaxed <laughs> and laid back. It means you're not going to be interested. It's boring. Don't fucking put it on a poster. Yeah, don't put it on a poster. Yeah. Yeah. Neil, can you get off the fence, please? Because I feel like you're not really uh, giving your views. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, trying to be more rest- I'm trying to be more restrained than this. <laughs> anyway, look, look, right. Uh, look, right if, cruise like, Control if, is if, getting like a good nickname for you, Neil, now. Yeah? Uh, I think Cruise Control is now going to be Rich's new name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on, July 3rd. It was the one film that they kind of held back for July 4th uh, Independence Day release. There's always a film that's released the day before to capitalise on the big you know, American independence holiday. The film in 1990 was another sequel, and it was a sequel to a film which me and Neil have talked about on his podcast with Jacob Rivera. It's a film that we absolutely worship. And the sequel to that film is Die Hard to Die Harder. Neil, over to you, my friend. My earliest memories uh, of Die Hard 2 was being sat on the top deck of a bus, not realising that a sequel to Die Hard was coming out, looking out the window and seeing Die Hard 2 on a big billboard and thinking, fucking what, they're making a sequel to this? And then seeing underneath Die Harder and thinking, oh, this is going to be rubbish. They've called it... <laughs> they've called it Die Harder. And I was thinking, oh, gee, let's go back to the cruise control thing again. I was thinking, oh, well, they're going to make a third one and call it Die Hardest. So I was like, oh, this is going to be rubbish. <sighs> For the longest time, I enjoyed this film when I first saw it. I absolutely adore Die Hard. Uh, I think Die Hard is, is, is a film... There's certain films that, for me, just fall into the, the perfect sort of category where, you know, you can watch Die Hard anytime and for me i'll find something new in the film i'll appreciate something it's always there's always something to be said for die hard for me with die hard 2 i did enjoy the film on first watching but i was like it's kind of just a retread of die hard and then as the years have gone on and i gotta be honest it's what i'm saying as years have gone on it's only really the last year or two because my sort of christmas eve tradition is die hard eight o'clock die hard goes on that's it now it's christmas Two years ago, I couldn't watch Die Hard because you and I had been to the cinema a day or two, well, a week before, I think it was, to watch Die Hard the yeah. first time in the cinema. I thought, you know what? I'm going to throw myself a wild card here. I'm going to check Die Hard 2 on. Die Harder. This film is actually, i got to be honest, 90% as good as a sequel to a perfect film can be. It's nowhere near as good as Die Hard, but again, like we were saying, certain films are lightning in a bottle and certain films if you look at the impact that die had this was a sort of era of muscle bound sort of like you know your, your john rambos your your you know john matrixes you know annals and slides to a lesser degree your van dams your chuck Norris's, but they were all sort of rippling muscle action men they all look like he-man figures basically Die Hard was the guy from Moonlighting. And again, if you look at the way that Die Hard's done with the character of McLean, it's quite realistic. i got to be honest, as much as it is over the top with the explosions and stuff like that, I kind of accept the fact that you can hang off the side of a building with a, with a hosepipe wrapped around you. I wouldn't want to do it, 
but I kind of accept the fact you could. Whereas by the same token, I know that, you know, certain other action films, you're not going to jump a car from towers in Abu Dhabi already, you know, and not get away with it. This film for me, as the years have gone, I've found myself loving this film more and more every time I watch it. But you're going to mention, Neil, the little bit at the end that you've always had a problem with? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, listen, with this film, much like Diab was based on a novel, this was based on a novel as well. It's not a McLean novel. It was based on uh, Walter Wager's 58 Minutes. Much yeah. similarly to Nothing Ever Lasts Forever, uh, which uh, Diab was based on, the cop in it is trying to save his daughter from a plane and they sort of him sort of transplanted that to sort of uh, Bonnie Bedelia's character, Holly McLean, being on the plane. This, for me, is almost a perfect film until we get to the end. And then when we mm. get to the end and we get McLean fighting William Sadner's Colonel... Colonel Stewart. Colonel Stewart, yeah. thank you. Uh, on the wing of a plane... And it's like all of a sudden McLean goes away from being the everyman action hero to being the action hero. Yeah. And I think, like I say, a lot of way through this film, I, mean, I say you've got a little sort of twist in it, haven't you? Like, you know, you get um, the... John Amos. Is it? Yeah, it is. Major Grant, isn't it? Yeah, John Amos. Yeah. Like so I can, I can, when he turns up in the film, I can remember thinking, this is great now because McLean isn't a one-man army. He's going to work. And John, yeah, He's and, gonna... and John Amos always played uh, a good guy, a nice guy. Yeah, and again, I thought when he, because he, you know, like you say, he was almost like he was the father figure and coming to America, wasn't he? Yeah. When, when, he, when he sort of turned up, I thought, this is great now. They're taking it, keeping it in the sort of realistic mold that McLean isn't this one-man army. He's a bit of a maverick cop mm-hmm. and a bit of a renegade, but he's going to work in tandem now with this sort of commando unit. And yeah. he had a little twist that they were part of the same sort of, uh, you know, the, the same sort of thing. But the film almost works. It almost works. And for me, I know a lot of people, as you know, recently I've noticed a lot of people have got a lot more love for Die Hard with a vengeance. For me, this is the sequel to Die Hard. Yeah. Now in the in the sort of mid two thousands, I guess I was you know on the on the cusp of uh, puberty. This isn't going where you think it's going. Um, <laughs> I had one of the most enviable collections of Bruce Willis DVDs. I was a teenager of impeccable film taste, obviously, and Die Hard it. was like the pinnacle of my collection. It was it was at the top. But yeah, I haven't seen Die Hard 2 since, you know, those days in the 2000s, those magic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just I prefer Die Hard 3, to be honest, because it, it, it does something a little bit fresh. Die Hard 2 is a good movie, but it does feel a little bit rinse and repeat of the first one, but just with bigger stakes. I, got, I was going to say, I got to say, that was always my criticism of it. Mm. Again, I've heard people sort of defend it by saying, well, he's not stuck in a, uh, a building. He's, you know, he's got the whole airport and stuff. He's still essentially in a building, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can understand exactly where you're coming from with that. And I can say, I can kind of understand where people come from with Die Hard with Vengeance. On paper, if you said to me at the time, you know, we're going to make a third film. We're going to put it in New York City. He's going to have, you know, a race against time, but it's going to, you know, it's going to be a completely sort of different setup. I'd have been great. I just don't think it was executed that well. I think we can probably agree that the first three films work fairly, to varying degrees quite well, and then after that, it just all goes to shit. Much, much like the uh, the Star Wars episode the Sky opened up with, mate. There's only three Die Hard films. <laughs> they don't go on, <laughs> they, they, they don't go on any further than that. Yeah, Neil, I fully agree with you. There are three Die Hard films. The first one's called Die Hard. The second one is called Die Hard Two Die Harder. The third Die Hard film is called The Last Boy Scout. You're quite correct. <laughs> <laughs> Why the hell? I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna go on my Die Hard Three rant. But the first half of the film is great, and I love where they were going. The second half, it turns into 
do a Looney Tunes cartoon. And if you think Bruce Willis is defying death and gravity and all sorts in the first two films, then they take it to the nth degree in the second half of Die Hard with a Vengeance. I have got a problem with it, sorry. I know I'm going to get some flack for that. I did after the after our Die Hard episode, but that's my stance on it, and I will die on this hill. Dude, I got your back every step of the way with that. that bit, I know you have, that, bro. That, that, I know that you bit have. where they lowered himself down to the, the, the freighter ship. Oh, and they, they fall they fall like a hundred feet onto a sh- onto a shipping container, onto a fucking shipping <laughs> container, and just get up and they're fine. So brush Fuck. themselves off like Wiley Coyote. Should literally do. <laughs> you know, people go like, I think it was great that they brought Samuel L. Jackson into that. When you think that this was a film that Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson made after Pulp Fiction, yeah, I know yeah. they don't share. I know they don't share screen time in Pulp Fiction, yeah. But let's just mm-hmm. think about it this way: you have Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson coming off Pulp Fiction. And the best they could do was die hard with a vengeance. That fucking says it all for me. <laughs> I will say, guys, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, and you all know where I'm getting at, the way people are going at the moment, going after certain types of media, films, television shows, and having them removed for specific content, how long is it going to be before they start going after die hard with a vengeance for that scene early on in the film? Well, ooh, yeah, but I think, well... <laughs> Who's going to be able to watch that now and say it's not problematic? But there you go. That's it a conversation was for another at the time. time, though, wasn't it? So exactly, it was. But then that's the whole thing. That's it was never supposed it. to be something that was done for laughs. It was done for holy shit. He is going to get himself killed. But that was the whole point. And hopefully, level heads will prevail, and people will watch it and see it in the correct context for what it is. And that's one of the reasons why, when he was filming it and he was out in the street, he was blank, and they had to put the words it in was, later. Yeah, and I think I think if it was I think if it's uh, shown on TV anytime soon now, I think it's going to be heavily edited. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Neil, like I say, you, I've got your back all the way on Die Hard Two. Uh, it's I, I've always been a, a, a defender of Die Hard Two. You and me have talked about this film at length. Yeah. You know, we've talked about it on the Die Hard episode. It is my favorite Die Hard sequel, much like other sequels to perfect films like Jaws Two, Predator Two. I, I think Die Hard Two falls under that umbrella of sequels, which are never going to be as good as the original. But I think, like you say, Neil. They're as good as they reasonably can be when you're talking about following up a perfect film. I think if you're following up a perfect film, which is scoring a 10 out of 10, if you're coming into a film now and you can sort of reasonably rate it a 7 or 8 out of 10, you're a bit extremely lucky. I agree. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, July 13th, the film that... It was the highest grossing film of 1990. It was directed by comedy stalwart Jerry Zucker of Airplane fame. It earned a huge, or a then huge, $505 million on a budget of just $22 million. Ghost. It's pretty huge today, $500 million. You know, there's there's even Marvel films which don't get that far. No, you're right. Yeah, they, they yeah. spent $22 million on that film and it grossed $505 million. That was just unheard of. It wasn't a big special effects heavy film. It, it was a, a romance uh, with, I suppose you could say, elements of spirituality, science fiction, colour, whatever, whatever you want. But yeah, you know, for that film to, to come pretty much from nowhere and to end up being, you know, the, the, the biggest film of 1990. And as we're going to get to, you know, there were some huge releases this year. And yeah, oh. Ghost was the highest grossing film. Back in those days, you know, now everything is on the big weekend and then the films fade after two or three weeks. It wasn't like that. Ghost was in the charts for months and months and months in the tops. It, it was, and, and that's bloody song. And this was the thing you had. It was, I might be completely wrong with this, but you, 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 you had a little period of time there whereby you had the, the main theme was, was either, either a remake or, or, or a classic love song that, or, or, you know, it was, it was, it was, 
taking that romantic element and alongside the box office success you had the chart success of the song as well and it kind of it kind of helped each other out because obviously you know that was 1990 the following year we had robin and prince of thieves the year after we had bodyguard and those songs that, that I, I i can't remember how long and chain melody was um was at the I top think, of the charts over that but i think it was, it was a good like eight, eight nine weeks wasn't it yeah it was, was eight nine eight, weeks yeah because brian adams did it for about like 13 years afterwards 16. 16 like, weeks he did Brian Adams in 16 weeks and it's and that's never been bettered and then and the one um, you missed is Wet did it with um, Four Weddings and a Funeral yeah, yeah. So, we, so we had this we had this in 1990 we had Robin Hood Prince of Thieves with Brian Adams in 91 Bodyguard in 92 Nothing in '93, and then uh, Love Is All Around in '94, and they were yeah. they were the big summer kind of not big budget films that carried you know complemented each other, and they and they not only did they smash the the cinema charts, but they smashed the music charts as well, and it really kind of out of all is, those out of all those films you mentioned, I would say the only one that was sort of fell into the category of blockbuster in the making while it was being made was probably Robin Hood Prince of Thieves wasn't it yeah, yeah. the rest yeah. of them yeah. the rest of them were almost sort of sleeper hits weren't they? they were more sort of word and mouth hits you know you know didn't didn't require huge budgets I can remember reading this as well that Patrick Swayze didn't want to do Ghost I think he was contractually obliged to do it as well well I think they were looking as well weren't they they were, they were looking like Dirty Dancing had gathered this kind of cult sort of following and they were looking for something because obviously he'd done Roadhouse and he'd done other films they were looking for something for that female market again weren't they they were looking for something oh, that... chick flick yeah definitely yeah well are you saying oh, yeah, yeah 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 but yeah it's a chick flick it's one of those chick flicks that i happily watch it is like, yeah. I think it's, it's it's you know it there's there's good there's good humor in it whoopi goldberg is excellent in it it's um it's it's, it's a good little film it, it, it is it's, it's an enjoyable film <laughs> it was, I'll, and it was... i'll say guys i'll say the same about pretty woman uh, as much as it's a completely unrealistic sort of representation of the particular profession that Julia Roberts' character does. Sex trade? It, yeah, <laughs> it is. You know, it's an, it's an enjoyable enough film. And I'll say the same about Ghost. And, and you know, thinking about it. And, pretty, Whoop, pretty... and Whoopi Gold, it's got Whoopi Goldberg and she's always good. Oh, she's great. She is fantastic. And again, thinking about it, Pretty Woman had the same effect with Roxette, didn't it? Must have been love. Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, 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 that's on yeah. the charts as well. So there we are. Was, hey, just to explain to you, um, what we used to have were these things called records. <laughs> You'd have to go into a shop and actually physically buy this small piece of plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you, have you got the nuns on the run record at home? <laughs> anyway, guys, let's That's move on. on right, soundtrack by yeah. Chelsea Dave. Fucking nuns on the run. <laughs> right, July eighteenth. July uh, we've got Arachnophobia, directed by Frank Marshall, and for me, one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. I've only ever seen it once. I don't want to see it again. Ah, oh, you great, wimp. Great, great, great film. <laughs> Great film that doesn't rely on CGI. No, yeah, no, no. Like spiders on sticks. Spiders on Fucking sticks. It's brilliant. Jesus Christ, the, the the amount of huntsmen's or, or certainly they look like them in that film. Yeah. Oh, just and the seat in the shower. Oh. Yeah, anyway, shush. Can't talk about it. Triggered. Sky's skin is literally crawling as we're talking. It literally is. Keep going, Steve. <laughs> no, it's actually a very funny film as well, though. It is a very funny film, yeah. Uh, yeah, John Goodman plays the exterminator, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he does, yeah. Like, uh, there's little spiders everywhere. As you're leaving that cinema, you are scratching your skin. <laughs> yeah. 
It was the type of thing where you were literally sort of lifting your feet in the cinema. I didn't, I didn't see it in the cinema, but I would imagine the type of thing where you'd be lifting your feet in the cinema because you'd think that you, you know, you'd feel so cool up your ankle or something. Oh dear! Oh, can you imagine that? Can, can you imagine on like a sort of four DX type thing, like they do all these? Oh, <laughs> oh Christ! Yeah, just dro- <laughs> dropping little rubber spiders on you wow. from the ceiling. Oh, but you know, it's one of those films, right? Like I've watched it sort of a few years ago, and I've shown my kids it. The, the, as I said, I was sort of making a joke before, but there, I mean, there's many scenes in there that you can see that you can, you can see the the arm. The, the spider is on and all the rest of it it's clearly clearly sort of not real but there, there's talk now of a, of a reboot there's talk now of a remake and all the rest of it and i just think it's one of those films that um animatronics and everything worked in the day are a bit hokey looking back but that's part of its charm as well and i think, I think that we're we're gonna have you know you're gonna have something now where we've all you know we've seen you know sort of the, 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 you know the spiders in Lord of the Rings, and we've seen huge CGI spiders. This film, part of the charm is its hokiness, and I think that you're gonna, it's, it's gonna be very difficult to replicate now if if you bring in kind of modern day sort of CG approaches to it. It's it's it's, it's of its time, very much so. Yeah, but it's, yeah. again, it's one of those sort of like, it's one of those sort of like not lost gems or hidden gems, but it's a gem of the past. And like you say, with the CGI fact, I mean, I'm absolutely terrified of snakes, much like Indiana Jones. Like you know. I, I, you know, I'm just as cool as him, but <laughs> and and just as knowledgeable about historical artifacts, I find. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I gotta be honest, I'm absolutely terrified of snakes. But I can watch snakes on a plane, no problem at all. I can watch like an mm. anaconda type film, no problem at all, because it it looks too clean. It looks CGI. Yeah, yeah I'm not CGI is not scary. Yeah, I'm not no. I'm not terrified of spiders, but I wouldn't want a big tarantula or a huntsman crawling over me. Do you know what I mean? But when mm. you watch it and you actually see the physical sort of spiders in the works there, it has more of an impact. And you say, like mm. some of the effects are a bit hokey, as you say, Rich, but that kind of fits into that sort of B-movie genre that it was going for anyway, I think. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. See, that's what I love about this episode, guys, because when we went back and started this podcast, I would never have thought we'd be devoting any amount of time to films like <laughs> Arachnophobia. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same about the next film, guys, because on no, on July 20th... Now, I used to love this film when I was a kid, for some reason. It probably is because it starred some of my then-favourite actors, Michael Bean, Bill Paxton, and Charlie Sheen. But i got to say, with hindsight, I think it's safe to say The Navy Seals isn't a good film. <laughs> how long did it take you to get to that conclusion? My, my, my defining memory of that film is thinking how cool it was of the fact that I think it was Bill Paxton's character who was the sniper in the team and his name was God or his nickname was God because he looked down on the rest of the team. <laughs> oh, That's still pretty cool. I've forgotten about that. A lot of time with action films, I'll kind of defend them in a way. You're going to have no defence about Navy Seals. No, no. no defence at all. <laughs> this should have been used as a benchmark when they proposed the Expendables franchise. They should yeah. have said, it's going to be like Navy Seals, isn't it? Yeah, we're not doing this like. And that should have been it. <laughs> you don't wonder whose fault it is that Michael Bean's just been done dirty by his career. Like, you look at his filmography. <laughs> He's been in, what, two great films? And then... Well, you know, yeah, he, did, he did Tombstone. He was good in Tombstone. Oh, he was fantastic. I think like we, like we said with Michael Bean before, Michael Bean was up for the Martin Riggs role in Lethal Weapon. And had yeah. he got that role, I think Michael Bean would be a massive, massive star. Yeah. Different story. What he, he was in some big films, but he was always the sort of second in command character, if you like, or the sort of like the sidekick character, you know? What he really needed was a good leading role. And had he got that good leading role, Michael Bean would have been a huge star. Mm. So obviously, uh, you know, uh, Navy SEALs starred Charlie Sheen, whose uh, actual birth name is Charlie Estevez. His brother, Emilio Estevez, starred in the next film on this list, which is another sequel, released August 1st, Young Guns 2, 
blaze of glory. Love it. Absolutely <laughs> love it. It's cheesy. It's camp. It's awful. I love it. Bon Jovi. <laughs> hey, come on, Dave. We want to talk about cool soundtracks. Blaze of Glory. You play that at my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deal. That's a deal, Neil. <laughs> oh, you'll you'll all be dead by then. <laughs> yeah, I would have seen to of that. Oh, right, August the third. We have got uh, Spike Lee follows up. Do the right thing. Is is phenomenal film from the previous year with Mo Better Blues, uh, a drama about jazz trumpeter. Bleak Gilliam, played by the always great Denzel Washington. Now, Steve, you're a resident jazz and blues expert. Would you say that this is one of Spike Lee's better films? It's it's second tier, Spike Lee. It is. I mean, it's not um, do the right thing, but there's a, a level of films like Jungle Fever, Crooklyn, things like that, which are really, really good films, but they don't quite achieve that you know perfection yeah. of uh, do the right thing and you know like black landsman last year that was fantastic and every so often he makes really really fantastic films these films i think is like it is second tier but that is is very very good because spike yeah. lee from second tier is is excellent now i watch mo better, mo better blues almost immediately after seeing do the right thing or do the right thing for me is still i think the best film of 1989 mo better blues following on from that i have found it to be just because it is not as kind of incendiary and an intense a film as do the right thing i found it maybe a little bit disappointing watch it a few years later then you know kind of removed from my expectations following do the right thing and the, the thing that stood out for me is just another amazing cast and just amazing performances yeah, yeah, you, you you can't watch them together because you will compare. Yeah, but um, by itself, I think you know. I mean, it, it's it's a very and Denzel Washington is fantastic in it, and it's good to see. I mean, he's not a good guy in it at all. He's a really complex character, and I think we need more of that in in the cinema. Now, speaking of follow-ups to classic films, August the tenth, Jack Nicholson directs himself in "Hold Back Your Gasps of Shock," a sequel to Roman Polanski's nineteen seventy-four masterpiece Chinatown. That film was The Two Jakes. Now, unfortunately, as was the case uh, in, in the, the Chinatown episode we did last year with Bill Scarry, I still can't track down a watchable copy of The Two Jakes, so I've still not seen it. You don't need to rush. It was it was one of the big flops of 1990. It had a budget of $19 million, and it grossed just $10 million. And it was the last time that Jack Nicholson directed a film. I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, no, that's the thing, Hayden. <laughs> everyone knows Chinatown. Everyone knows what you know a classic film that is. The Two Jakes, maybe because it's not called Chinatown Two, or it doesn't sort of like signpost itself as being a sequel. They should have put Cruise Control or China Harder. Yeah, China yeah. Harder. Chinatown Two Cruise Control. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's just unbelievably bearing in my mind how much I love the original. I just never got round to watching the Two Jakes. Uh, don't don't rush out and watch it, Sky. Because no. I mean, it, it's a, it's an okay film, but when you think about what it is, what a sequel it is too, it, it is so disappointing. Yeah. Now the sequels are coming thick and fast now, and August seventeenth, The Exorcist three. Now, Steve William Friedkin's nineteen seventy three original is one of our favorite oh, horror it's films. Amazing. So, yeah. can I hand this one over to you? Well, I've only ever seen the director's version, which is um, oh, uh, the Legion cut. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. And that's got a number of scenes uh, input in it, but the only because um, a lot of the the footage was lost, they used VHS footage to input um, search, and it doesn't work. I mean, you can tell it's, it's it's really really badly done. Yeah. However, and there are a few scenes in there which you think, well, this should have been cut out anyway. There's a scene yeah. in there where Brad Dorif impersonates a lion and a train and all these. I'm thinking, what the hell is that? I mean, there was no way that should be in there in the first place. 
it's you know for people who aren't familiar with the film, the original 1973 William Friedkin film, The Exorcist, was based on a novel by William Peter Blatty. It was Blatty himself that actually directed The Exorcist Three. The studio weren't kind of happy with the direction the film was going, and sort of they took it off him. Yeah, yeah, they they basically took the film off him, and you know the, the final film ended up having an exorcism in it, whereas you know the original. Uh, film as planned didn't there, there are two versions of the film out there you can get them both on the recent uh, shout factory um, in the us and in the uk the arrow video blu-ray releases you've got the the theatrical version then you've got the the, the legion cut because originally blatty wanted to call the film legion i'm told that the, i haven't seen both versions i'm told that the differences uh you know are, are quite significant i'll have to go back and watch the theatrical version again but uh, there are a few scenes in the end there's one scene in particular which is one of the greatest jump scares ever in the hallway yeah it's, the hospital uh, corridor yes, scene yeah, is just it. it's it is a masterpiece it builds it up and then it takes you down a little bit it builds it up further and then takes you down again and then when it happens Every time I watch it, I just jump, even if I watch but, it on YouTube. You know, it's also got an amazing performance from Brad, Brad Dourif, and it's all, it's got George C. Scott, who is just always great in it. I, I can't think of a film where he just isn't anything other than great. Uh, that's another sequel. August 17th, we've got Wild at Heart, David Lynch, uh, Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern. Guys, any David Lynch fans here? Uh, that was my first David Lynch, that was, and I just I didn't have a clue what was going on after oh, it. Thank you, mean, you I, Steve. I, yeah. I, I, I've, since then, I've grown to enjoy David Lynch, but I can't say I've ever been a really big fan. Of all the films, I, you know, most of the films on this list that we're going to be talking about, I don't need to watch because I've seen them umpteen times. I actually tried to re-watch Wild at Heart the other night on Netflix. In the end, I got to the point, I think, where Diane Ladd's character is talking to Harry Dean Stanton on the phone and she just covered her face completely in lipstick. It's typical Lynchian weirdness and because it was so late at night, I thought, you know what? I'm too tired to give this the attention that I need to. And instead, I think I actually did some... uh, some prep notes for this episode instead and i turned it off i will go back and finish it but i i do struggle with david lynch um i know i'm gonna get some flack from film twitter about that but i know a lot of other people are in the same camp as me and they just do struggle with how i don't want to say weird but yeah that's the best word i can think of he's he's very much uh yeah very much an acquired taste he's a type of director i kind you know i admire him and i can see why people enjoy his stuff i just don't get it and i just can't get into it you know and it's like when i watch it i can i can almost appreciate that what i'm seeing is something different and something visionary it just never really seems to work for me and that's me being completely honest i mean i know a lot of people are probably trying you know sort of like sugarcoat it but i'm probably just a bit too dull to watch it to be honest i've seen some Mm -hmm. of his films like um, i saw dune recently for the very first time and i did enjoy that the elephant man and the straight story and even blue velvet i mean i do like those films but they never to me, they never hit the pantheon. Right, the Elephant Man is an absolute masterpiece. You know, it's not all David Lynch films, but you know those ones that sort of have got that weird David Lynchian Americana, yeah, American of, Gothic sort of vibe. Yeah, yeah, it's it's though it's that type of film. Yeah. You know, oh, the the Elephant Man is just magnificent, but that's a, a totally different style of film altogether. And again, that that proves what a versatile sort of director he is, really. Doesn't yeah, it? he is. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. Not, yeah. not knocking him for a second. Right. Uh, next on the list, guys, we've got August 24th, Darkman. Sam Raimi's action science fiction thriller. It was made for a fairly minuscule budget of $16 million, and it made worldwide a gross of nearly $49 million. And i got to say, it's a hell of a lot of violent, hokey fun. 
they destroyed everything he had. All that he loved. Everything that he was. Now, crime has a new enemy, and justice has a brand new face. I was afraid that you wouldn't want me anymore. Of course I still want you. The good news is that I know who's behind our little troubles of late. Finish it. He has the power to look like any man. This two are both sons of witches! But he is unlike any man. I gotta tell you something about me. He's a cockroach. You think you're killing? And he pops up someplace else. In the darkest hour. Julie, who's the real monster here? There's a light that shines on every human being. But one. From director Sam Raimi. Dark Man. Yeah, and again, it was funny enough, mentioning The Shadow earlier, that's what it's based on, really, isn't it? Because he wanted to make yeah. a film version of The Shadow, didn't he? But he couldn't get the rights to it. So he went off and made his own made his own superhero. Yeah, no, I, and again, apologies for my poor prep. Dark Man, that's an original IP. Eh? It's not based on any sort of comic or graphic novel. It's an idea based solely, as I say, on the fact that he wanted to make a Shadow movie. He wanted to make, yeah. and when he couldn't get the rights, he went off and wrote his own. And if you look, I mean, the elements of the actual character, the way the visuals of the character, and not a million miles from the Shadow, really, with the sort of the, the, the big coat, the, the face being covered, sort of semi covered with a bandana, yeah, you know, yeah. replaced oh, God, with yeah. a bandage, you know, the, the changing of the faces as well. You know, it's, it's all elements of the Shadow in there, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, you know those those sixteen million dollars. You can you can tell it's a relatively certainly for the time low budget film because there's a lot of quite dodgy effect shots and bad process shots, but there's a lot of really cool stuff in it. And Raimi, I think, for sixteen million dollars, delivered a hell of a lot of film. And I think it's a it is a damn entertaining but you know action science fiction comic book film. Yeah, as much as as much as you're saying about the sort of dodgy shots, to me a lot of it, you know, it looks like a comic book movie should have looked in sort of 1990. I don't think it's actually that bad. And like you say, with the budgets, you know, a lot of that sort of the map paintings they use for the visual, for the skylines and stuff like that, is not noticeable. It's almost beautiful. You know, when you look at what he did on a much larger scale budget with the Spider-Man trilogy, for me, for 16 million, that film looks as if it cost a lot more than 16 million. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So, uh, guys, August 24th, <laughs> another sequel. Oh, God. <laughs> with, with another sequel with kind of like a bad kind of subtitle. <laughs> Delta Force 2, The Colombian Connection. <laughs> what the, What is this doing on a list of major mainstream releases from 1990? Now, but again, it's, it's, it's almost a product of the VHS days, isn't it? It's, it's, it? This is what we were getting a lot of time. We were getting sequels that were coming out in cinemas when the original films were more VHS fair, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's sort of built, it's built itself on the fact that, you know, the, the original film, which isn't a great film, let's be honest. But... Oh, Neil, Neil, I, I've rewatched the original maybe about a year or two back, and it really doesn't hold up now the sequel is this more generic 80s action it does star admittedly the hardest man on earth toughest um, guy ever you know there's little else to say about it and isn't it this the one where number three was supposed to be no, no that's missing an action isn't it yeah yeah oh, that's right sorry i'm confusing my chuck films sorry which is easily done it's yeah. easily done anyway <laughs> moving did, on guys hang on a sec he had a yeah he had a motorbike <laughs> with rocket launchers on the back 
That was the first one. Was it? That was the first. Yes, that was the first one. <laughs> Come on, Neil. That tells you. That tells you how much I appreciate these films. I've confused it yeah. with missing in action. Sh- Showing your eyes, there, Neil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a motorbike with with mortar cannons on the back. Yeah. Another film released on August 24th was Dreams. Now, it's one of the few Akira Kurosawa films that I've not seen, and I know that Martin Kastler isn't going to be impressed with that fact. Uh, Steve? Yes, of course I've seen it. It's a very different film to Delta Force 2, The Colombian Connection. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically a collection of... Um, yeah, it's a collection. I think it's about six or seven dreams. You know, if you want a, if you want narrative cinema, this is not it, but it is gorgeous to look at is mesmerizing in his um it's i think it was the penultimate film of uh, kira kurosawa because he did the richard gear film i think a year or two later if you're looking for like they say mainstream cinema with a good story keep away from it but if you're looking for something that you'll just sit down and just let it wash all over you and admire this is a, it's a, a fabulous film it is so steve it's broken into like seven different short stories are they Stories in a conventional sense, just no, all no. sort of. Okay. No, the first one, for example, is a um, young boy who sneaks off to witness uh, the fo- the wedding of the foxes, I think. And then there's a there's another one involving somebody trying to chase down Vincent Van Gogh, played by uh, Martin Scorsese, and things like that. You know, there's none of them have got a generic, you know, first act, second act, third act. It's nothing like that at all. So speaking of Martin Scorsese, guys, uh, that was August twenty fourth. Uh, the release schedule was a little bit sparse then throughout September until September 21st when Martin Scorsese dropped upon the world the film that we know as Goodfellas. The best film of the year from my point of view. I, yeah. I would I would not disagree with that. It is for me, yeah, out of all the films in 1990, that is, yeah. Yeah, the, we're the talking... Uh, it's, it's Goodfellas. It, it yeah. is the best film of 1990. It's for me one of the greatest films of all time uh, back when uh, you Steve and Tony did the Irishman episode uh, the yeah. week before uh, just before I saw the Irishman I watched Goodfellas probably shouldn't have done that because watching Goodfellas and then watching the Irishman I was just left wanting because Goodfellas is just it, it's, it, it is again it's one of those films it, like like we said with like Jaws you know, films like that, which you know, the Empire Strikes Back films. Yeah, it is perfect. a perfect movie. Yeah. It is a perfect film. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything against the Irishman because I love the Irishman. I've seen it four times now. But um, yeah, Goodfellas is, like you say, it's a perfect movie. It's got, it's it's one I think one of the best directed movies of all time. You know, from oh, that far. the manic enthusiasm of the first half of the sweeping camera and the smooth editing, and then the chaotic and paranoid cut in the second half. You know, it's. And it's completely immersive. You you are in that world for the full mm-hmm. length of the film. I, what I say, you, you you end up being swept up, I think, by the exuberance of the first half of the film, and you love the journey. And but I don't think at any time you want to be part of that gang. It's quite scary, you know. And Goodfellas doesn't it doesn't judge the people in the film. It allows us to do it, and he puts the onus on us to make the call. And it trusts us to make the call. Uh, like uh, we said about uh, uh, Total Recall, it asks us to keep up and um, I think that uh, well you all know how much I, what I think of Martin Scorsese I mean I've probably reviewed more films of him for the site than any other director and I think that uh, this is an example why I think he's the greatest living director go see Goodfellas if you haven't seen it go see it there's a, maybe five Scorsese films which I would say are the absolute pinnacle of those and I can't think of any argument against Goodfellas being his best film. I just think 
there's other films that I love as much that I would say are as good. If someone was to say, I think Goodfellas is uh, Martin Scorsese's greatest film, I would have no argument against that. It's, it's I, I wouldn't film. have an argument it's... against it either, although I, in recent years, um, I think Silence is propelled right up to the top. I love Silence, and but they're very different films, so it's easy to say this can go into this category, that can go in that category, because they are both amazing films, and you know, like I say, so many Martin Scorsese films are up in that uh, that pantheon. Like you say, it's, it's one of those films that literally is when we sort of bandy around the film's masterpiece, there's very sort of few films you can attach that label to and, you know, succeed, you know, succinctly say that most people are going to agree with you. And I think with Goodfellas, you've got that case. And like Steve was saying, the fact that it's not a film where you're exactly rooting for the bad guys. And it's, it's almost unnerving. Like you, like Steve was saying, you don't want to be part of that gang. You wouldn't want to be part of that world, but it's just the way that everyone seems to be sucked into it. Everyone's drawn into it. And like you say, with the sort of directorial prowess, I mean that bit when he's walking through the the, the backs of the uh, the nightclub through the, ki- through oh, the kitchens yeah. and stuff like that, there's a, that, that part where you just think this is this lifestyle is just so fucking cool that you know you're gonna live fast and die young though. Yeah. But but yeah, yeah. The, the, the the caveat with that is you're not gonna die young, you're gonna rot in jail. And then throughout throughout the film, that's always hanging over everyone's head in that film, isn't it? You're just waiting for it to happen. Everyone, it's almost yeah. like when someone gets whacked, it's almost like a reprieve, isn't it? Goodfellas is, you know, with hindsight now, looking back on all the films that we've talked about and they're going to talk about from 1990, that is my favourite film of 1990 and it's one of my all-time favourite films, full stop. Yeah, I think yes, you're the top... The, the best films of the 90s. And to follow that with Casino as well, you know, later on as well. Oh, you know, yeah. I know we're talking about films this this an issue, but for me it's a toss-up between the two, but I'd have to probably... I'd probably go with Goodfellas. It'd be a very hard pick for the two... For my favourite Scorsese easy film, those yeah. two films. yeah. Right, that was September 21st. September 28th. This is one for you, Neil. Dark Angel. Now, Neil, I think it's right to say that this criminally underrated and underseen action science fiction film starring Dolph Lundgren and friend and follower of Film 89, Matthias Hughes, is one of the hidden gems of 1990. Is that right? It literally, well, it's Dark Angel for our international market, a.k.a. I Come In Peace. I Come In Peace. Uh, for some reason in America, two films were made in 1934 and 1935 that both had Dark Angel in the title, and they thought that a sci-fi action adventure starring Dolph, Dolph Lundgren might be confused with them, so they decided to, <laughs> to change the title for some reason. And that's literally... I've had to look that up. <laughs> no, yeah. the, un- the unfortunate thing about us talking about this film, is the majority of people listening probably wouldn't have seen it. It's one of those films I think is gaining more of a sort of cult following in the last year or two. I can remember literally it was about sort of ten years ago, twelve years ago. You'd watched it. We you were off sick, off work, and then you came in and you said, I couldn't believe I watched this film it was on like Channel Five or something. And I'd seen it when it was on the sort of VHS sort of circuit. And you were like, I've seen this film called Dark Angel, and it really stands up. And weirdly, I'd watched it about three months before and not mentioned it. And it's like yeah, like you say I, I saw it, um, in this uh, following this theatrical release, well, I don't. It didn't get a theatrical no, release not, in the UK. I saw it in VHS probably in like 1991. But I think completely you'd, re- you'd rewatched it. Freaked out over it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'd, we'd rewatched it, and I came into work, and I was telling you about, it, assuming that you didn't know about the film, and then obviously you were like, "What? Are you kidding me?" And yeah, again, another one of the films we bonded over. But that is one film that, it's- on paper, a cheesy, generic science fiction action film from you know the late 80s, early 90s, but. God damn it, it really does hold up. Right, and I was going to say, it does hold up, and it perhaps, like we were talking about arachnophobia, perhaps it should be this little time capsule. But what I will yeah. say is, when you're making re- remakes of films like Total Recall, like Robocop, why has no one ever thought to do a remake of Dark Angel? 
Exactly, yeah. Because the storyline to it, like you say, is for the uninitiated, basically two aliens two aliens come to Earth and they appear to be killing off drug dealers. The reason yeah. they're killing off drug dealers is they're using the drugs to shoot into people's arms and then with a big lance, steal the endorphins from their brains. Yeah, well, it's, it's two aliens, isn't it? One is well, well they're both seven say, foot don't, tall. Don't one give, is don't give the twist away. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, I got you. No I got spoilers, you. Yes. No spoilers. No. And this this was the first film where I think Dolph Lundgren could actually speak English because, like Richard mm. mentioned, with Masters of the Universe, I think he had a contract where he had three attempts to be He-Man, didn't he? Otherwise, his voice was going to be yeah. dubbed. Mm, yeah. Strangely, Dolph Lundgren pulls off almost an American accent in this. I film. agree. He does. Yeah, it's yeah, his accent is is. Yeah, it's not an issue at all in this film. It's, this film yeah. should have been made five years earlier. If this yeah. film had come out in 1986, instead of Red Scorpion or the, the, the other films that uh, Dolph did pre-Rocky for, mm. I think it would have been a bigger success. I mean, you know, it's so 80s. It's the 80s vibe to it. I mean, it's got Jan Hammer, who did the, the uh, Miami Vice soundtrack, does the soundtrack for it. It's ultimate 80s film, and it's just a shame that it came out in 1990. But it's also got the the main bad guy is cool beyond belief. He's got the coolest weapons. That, you know the, what he's come to Earth to do. The the whole idea is pretty unique and very well thought out. He's got a cool catchphrase. Exactly. The, the the irony of I come in peace even though I'm coming here to slaughter humans. It's Predator meets Terminator. You know, meets, <laughs> there's, there's, there's so many genres just mishmashed into it. And on paper, it definitely shouldn't work. And if the guys listening here, you know, all that, you know, just ask guys. You know, guys, if you haven't seen it, I mean, this guy is enthusiastic about it. You're going to think this sounds like generic shit. On paper, it does sound like generic shit. But for some reason, it just works, doesn't it? As, as you're the, talking, uh, as you're talking, I'm scrolling through the pictures on IMDb, and I have to see this film. Rich, I, Rich, Rich, you will I see not you see now, be right? disappointed. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, listen to me and Neil now. I, I, a lot of our listeners are probably going to be like, seriously, sounds like straight to DVD nonsense or straight to VHS nonsense, as it would have been back then. No, this is genuinely a legitimately good film. Oh, I'm, I, I'm looking for it now, without a doubt. So, also September 28th, King of New York. Now, I'm going to get some flack on this one from certain quarters, but I re-watched Abel Ferreira's 1990 crime drama recently, and as much as Christopher Walken is in full-on Walken mode, for me, this film really hasn't aged well. Now, comparing this to Goodfellas, which came out the same year, Scorsese's film, for me, hasn't aged one bit, and it's a timeless masterpiece, but King of New York is just mired in this weird transitional 80s to 90s vibe, the music, the fashions, everything... And it just made me cringe a bit. And I rewatched it. I was really eager to rewatch it. <clears throat> I think I'd listened to maybe Tarantino mention it on a uh, podcast. And it just really disappointed me. Anyone else seen it, guys? Yeah, I can yeah I've seen I it. Can, I, I'm yeah. exactly the same. You know, I was really looking forward because it's got such a good reputation. But when I saw it, I was really disappointed. I thought it was quite boring, to be honest. Nothing much happens yeah. in it. Yeah, completely agree with that, Steve. Yeah. We'll move on then to another crime film. But this one that isn't disappointing, directed by the Coen brothers, released on October 5th, Miller's Crossing. Fantastic film with great performances from Gabriel Byrne, John Turturro, and in particular, Albert Finney. Guys, any of you seen this? Yes, yes, I've seen it. It's a film with all the hats. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it was recommended to me by someone and they they kept going on about it so much. And I was like, I'm not going to enjoy this film at all. And then was just thoroughly engrossed by the movie all the way through. Albert Finney with a Tommy gun is just awesome. (laughs) Yeah. 
Right, uh, you had Memphis Bell that was released October 12th. Same date then. October 12th, To Sleep With Anger. It's directed by Charles Burnett. Now, I haven't seen this film for years, but it is available on Criterion, and it features... And the one thing I haven't forgot about the film is an amazing central performance from Danny Glover. I'm not going to say too much about the film. His character is this... Well, again, anything I say about him is going to give it away. Steve, have you seen this film? I haven't, and I did last year look on Criterion today for it, and it's not there. It is on Criterion, and it's highly recommended, and Glover is absolutely amazing. That's all I'm going to say. Right, November 9th, you've got another sequel... Charles Play 2. Anyone want to say anything about that? I don't particularly. Not no. really. <laughs> and then uh, one of the biggest films of the year released on November 16th the second highest grossing film of 1990 making $476 million on a budget of just $18 million is Home Alone. This for me is, is a timeless family film. My own kids absolutely love it. My wife loves it and it does still hold up. There's been a couple of Christmas films since Home Alone but this has got to be one of the last proper christmas films that, that have become classic christmas films but it but feel really quite new i know it's 30 years ago but you know what i mean there's yeah. there's, there's you, if you could think of anything since then there's elf there's a, there is only literally a, a couple of films that, that people will that have become repeat viewing family christmas films well me me, me and my well, my wife and my kids you know we, we quote this film and you know my kids are like nine and six it's just one of those ones that we've all watched as a family and it, it still holds up it is really really good it's a great film like you say about quoting, if you say "keep the change of filthy animal," I would guarantee I would guarantee that ninety five percent of the room would get what you were what, what film yeah. you were talking about. And it is fun for all the family type films, yeah. isn't it? The best Christmas films are the ones that just happen to take place at Christmas. I don't really care for the films that are actually about you know the characters of Santa and and the elves and all that crap. So yeah, Home Alone, as you're saying, it's a timeless classic. But because it it's, it has a story to tell and it's just it's Christmas time and it is what it is. Can it, I just yeah, point- it, it, it completely wears. It, it is exactly what you say. It is. It is. It is unashamedly. It, it. It is what it is. It's just. It is it's such a great fun film, and and everyone's in on it as well, you know. And you've obviously you've got Joe Pesci back off the back of Goodfellas, um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. but so, playing yeah. completely against type. <laughs> But it is, it's, everyone is so in on the gag, aren't they? And, and they're clearly all having a whale of a time making this film. It's, it's fantastic. And it was the highest gross in live action comedy until Hangover 2 in 2011. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> there oh, we go. God. So it's a company. Talking, what a film to topple it. Talking of Christmas films, Sky, one thing we didn't mention Dark Angel is a Christmas film. Oh, right. Set yeah. of Christmas. Oh. Yeah. As if I right. needed any more reason to want to watch it. <laughs> so there's, there's another reason for you, listeners. <laughs> so uh, also on the November 16th, we had The Rescuers Down Under, another sequel. Now, Hayden, this is an animated <laughs> film about mice on an adventure in your home country. Now, as our resident animation expert and an Australian, obviously you're a big fan and of And a fan film. of Disney as well. So, yeah, in this film, the RAS agents, Miss Bianca and Bernard, race to Australia to save a little boy. And I'm reading that off the IMDb website because I have no, no idea what this is about. No, we are not. <laughs> it from memory. All right. Anyway, uh, moving on. November 16th gave us another sequel. From a million to one shot. He became a true champion of the world. Now, the glory. Because of the continuous violent blows to the head, the effects are irreversible. The crowds. My husband is retired. He has 
nothing more to prove. And the money are gone. You lost millions. Look, I still got my place in the old neighborhood. His title is in the hands of a new champion. He might win a few fights, but he's no Rocky Balboa. Controlled by an unscrupulous promoter. This is your medical report. It's not so good, but we can work around it. All that's left is his family. We've been down before. I'll get it all back. His heart. I gotta fight, okay? I got problems, I gotta fight. And a dream. A dream to get it all back. This is a tremendous opportunity. Opportunity for who? For you to make money for him to be disabled? You know he can't carry Balboa stuff. As long as they got Balboa on the brain, he'll always be champ. That man to fight, and if he refuses, then you gotta insult him. You gotta dog him. You gotta humiliate him. You gotta do whatever you got to do to get him into that ring. They tell me you're a piece of garbage. You know that? No, that's it. You told him I'd fight anywhere, anytime. In the ring, in the ring. Tommy Gunn only fights in the ring. My ring's outside. Yeah. Let's do it. Come on, Tommy, knock me out. Rocky V. <laughs> oh, uh, in fact, Neil, go for it. Oh my God, where do I start? Yes. Right, I'm, I'm not going to go too deep on this because I promised our good friend Jacob Rivera that we're going to do a Rocky episode with him. So I'm not going to go too deep on it. All I am going to say is, if you were disappointed about RoboCop 2, my friends. <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, I'm using the phrase on paper again. This was supposed to be a much darker film. You can kind of see where Stallone was going with this. He was taking Rocky back to the streets of Philadelphia. He was breaking him down to nothing. I think after Rocky IV, they'd pretty much done all they could do. I mean, the Rocky films get sillier and more sort of over the top as they go on Rocky III to Rocky IV. I mean, basically, there's an urban legend in there in Hollywood that basically Rocky V someone suggested that he should fight an alien because that was the only person who could be strong enough to take on Rocky Balboa after he'd taken on Drago. I think that's where the idea for Predator came from. So at least it gave us that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, I mean, like I say, this is supposed to be a much darker film. I mean, originally they were going to bring back the character Little Marie, the original actress who was going to play Little Marie. She comes back in Rocky Balboa, but that's Geraldine Hughes and it's a different actress. And she was going to be a street worker, a sex worker. Uh, Rocky, they actually filmed the scene where Rocky died at the end. Yeah. They they bring in George Washington Duke, who's a sort of Don King character. It was the oh, sort sort of Don King character. They may as well have called him Don King. Right, okay. touch me and I'll sue. There's an episode of The Simpsons where they bring in a, a guy called Lucius King, and he says, "I'm exactly <laughs> like Don King, but nothing like him for legal reasons." And I, <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that uh, George Washington Duke is more on the nose than that. But. <laughs> When you look at it, if you look now, you're going to have Rocky's going to lose all his money. He's going to be back on the streets of Philadelphia. He's going to have brain damage so he can't fight again. He's going to train this young up and come and fight. They went and got a real fighter for the first time ever with Tommy Morrison, who, yeah. i got to be honest, for a professional boxer, does a pretty good job in the film. I mean, he's given yeah, limited yeah. screen time, but he's, he doesn't stand out as a non-actor in the film. Like you say, the original thing is that Rocky's going to die at the end of the film. It's, they're going to have the corruption side of boxing because we never really see that. When we see the Rocky films, in the original film, we have a sort of Bob Arum type promoter, if you like, who just sort of says, oh, it doesn't matter what colour your trunks are, no one's going to care, and, you know, this is your shot, just take the money and run type thing. But we'd never seen the sort of dirty, seedy side of boxing. Now, you've got to think, 
going through the 80s into the early 90s, Don King was boxing. You know, there's stories about Don King. You know, I mean, there was one story about uh, he brought Tim Witherspoon over to fight Frank Bruno and he guaranteed them a million dollars each. Frank Bruno got a million dollars. Tim Witherspoon owed Don King £88,000 after the fight. That's how much he would rip fighters off. So, you know, you can see what he was trying to do with it. They brought John G. Avelson back, the original director. Yeah. Uh, to, but then it all just went wrong. This was the film you, were to, you alluded to earlier on, isn't it? That, that me and you this, had one of our earliest the, conversations about. It's the first conversation you and I ever had about films, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, about 15 years ago. As you said, and, and I think that's always been my defence of it, if you like, is that there's so, there are certain themes, there are certain... You, you can see that they were approaching... They, they, there's a solid story in there. It's just there's so much shit. Whether it's the 90s rap, whether it's your Don King rip-off... They, whether it's Sage Stallone, God rest his soul, there is so much stuff in that film that is just shit that's chucked at it. If they stripped it back and got rid of all these these extra bits, there was a tidy story there, and that's what we got with Rocky Balboa. Thankfully, he went back and he made up for Rocky V with Rocky Balboa because certain things that clearly needed to be there to close the story, albeit well, we had Creed... This is what I was going to say. A lot of people tend to write off Rocky V as it never happened. We just jump from Rocky IV to Rocky Balboa. But the important thing to realise is without Rocky V, we don't get any further stories. Yeah, we don't get exactly. A, we don't get the we don't get the Creed spinoff. No, without Rocky V. Yeah, yeah. It you know it, Rocky V is easily the weakest of the six Rocky films, not counting obviously then kind of spinoffs of the two Creed films. Yeah, it, it is, but it exists. It's part of the canon. It's a bit of an embarrassing mess. But, you know, the rest of the Rocky films are so great, I think it is more than makes up for it. You just yeah. kind of grin and bear it, don't you? It, you know, if you're you going to watch some more you through, you grin and bear it. Because there's, there's a couple yeah. of bits in there. We've got, you know, Mickey's back um, in, in flashback, and you've seen... So there are, there are little bits... Yeah, Neil. If, if our listeners wanted a, a little bit more, in fact, a hell of a lot more information on all of the Rocky films, in fact, <laughs> several thousand word essays, perfectly written on all of the films, where would you point them? Uh, I would look on film89.co.uk. <laughs> Just type in Rocky, and you will find a slew of amazing articles about that entire saga. Yeah, and like I said, there will be a future episode coming up one day. I've promised Jacob, and we just haven't got around to it yet. Mm-hmm. So moving on, guys. Uh, November twenty first, Dances with Wolves. Kevin Costner's epic revisionist western. It's just, I mean, it's a masterpiece, isn't it? It, 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 it yes. it's so much has been said about the film. Um, you know, it's three hours long. It's the story of of John Dunbar, who obviously is injured following choosing um, death in battle over amputation of his leg, and then is transferred up to the frontier and forges a relationship then with a group of um, Sioux Native Americans. It's such a it's such a character based film. I'm a fan of of, of films set in, in the in the West, but I'm not a huge I'm I, you know I'm, I'm not hugely knowledgeable about them. I don't have a huge kind of um, uh, uh, of history watching them. But this film, I just think it, it it I think there's a lot of people that have kind of criticised it now looking back, or certainly as it being kind of um, uh, made for Oscars and and you know kind of ticking the boxes and all the rest of it. And I think you can certainly look back on certain elements where things are simplified. Um, and, and John Dunbar can be seen as, as the saviour of the Native American uh, who he's with. But I just find that, that that three hours, when you're watching that film, it doesn't feel like three hours at all. It, it, it's such a well-made film that really kind of draws you in. The music is beautiful. It's, it's a really, really all-encompassing film. It's, it's, it's great. You say about um, how it's made for Oscars, though. I remember when it was, before it was released, you know, people were scathing about it. Everybody thought it was going to be a disaster. They called it Kevin's Gate. 
Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, they, you know, and I think that it really took people by surprise when he's out, uh, when he was released, because it's such a good film. It's such a good and well-made story. I think that, I mean, at the time, Kevin Costner was a huge star. Oh, yes, he wasn't He wasn't an Arnold Schwarzenegger or uh, Freddie, um, Freddie, Freddie Murphy. Mercury? <laughs> yes, yeah, Freddie Murphy. Uh, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, <laughs> Oh, but, but no, he wasn't. A, you know, he wasn't that kind of star. But he was, you know, up and coming. But and a lot of people didn't like him, I think. And then when this came out, I think it, it really took people surprised. And I think before November, I don't think anybody would have put that down as sweeping the Oscars like it was going to. No, it almost sounded like a bit of an ego project, didn't it? To be yeah. with, it was like as if he got a bit. Like you say, he had some hits. But he was perhaps more of an actor that was emerging as a serious actor, really, rather than the sort of personality or the film star that we have with like the Schwarzeneggers or the Murphys, wasn't he? Well, that was it as well, wasn't it? And that was the thing with him. You were. We've talked about this time that it being very much the time of vehicles for stars, and you've got those. You know, they're very much playing what they're playing in each film with with slightly different things. And this was very. This was not the case with this, and it was very much about. Okay, it was you know it was directed by him and 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 what have you based on the book by Michael Blake. It didn't feel like a vehicle for him. Maybe it was no. a, maybe there was a kind of the element of well you know he was going to put himself as the star of the film, but it certainly doesn't take anything away from that film. You you certainly do believe him. He he, he plays that so well. It's, it's it's a really really it's a great Sunday afternoon film. He's bankable bankable enough at that stage to go to a studio and say look I want to direct the film. I want to star in this film. This is my project. Yeah and quite often when you get actors who get to that stage it's very much a sort of 50 50 split isn't it between sort of solid good performances and like you say just ego projects that tend to run off the rails yeah yeah have you seen the four hour conversion of it because I've not, I've not seen the four hour cuts I, i've seen the extended cut well look before i come to you know my verdict on whether the extended cut's better than the theatrical i gotta say that dances of the world if Goodfellas is the best film of 1990, then this one is a close second. I think this is... I, I've heard people shit on this film recently. I, I don't understand it. I don't, I've never understood where any sort of disdain for this film would come from because it's an absolute masterpiece. From start to finish, it's impeccably directed. Costner is outstanding. In it. The supporting cast, Graham Green, Mary McDonnell, Rodney A. Grant, all, all the supporting cast are just wonderful. It looks just gorgeous. John Barry's score... And you know, by the end, you know that scene with wind in his hair when he's shouting from the cliff down to Dunbar, it just gets me. It destroys me every time. Yeah. And the 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 longer version, it's one of those films that even though it's already three hours and, and a minute long in its theatrical cut, the extended cut, which adds a good, I think, fifty five minutes of extra footage, it all still works. And it, it turns a, a long film into, a, into an even longer film, but it's still, it, it, it's nothing that you would think, yeah, that really doesn't need to be there. I'm sure there's going to be an argument for the theatrical cut over the longer one, but for me, it's a film I already love. It's more great stuff. It fleshes out certain subplots and characters. I just think it's an absolute goddamn masterpiece. I love the film. I'd have to agree with you there. And I think, like you say, that any criticism it gets now, I think, is more from a sort of, how can I phrase this gently, uh, from a political standpoint rather yeah. than a, rather than a critical standpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It only cost $22 million when you you, know, you think about just insanely beautiful the film is and, and you know the fact that they had to go out into you know the wilderness to film much of it. You know, it grossed. Four hundred twenty-four million dollars. It was the fourth highest-grossing film. You know, then it went on to do extremely well. You know, in, in in the Academy Awards that followed. 
It won Best Film. Yeah. Won Best Adapted Screenplay. Best Director. Yes, it won Best Director. Yeah. It won, obviously, John Barry won Best Original Score. It won more awards. I'm, I'm almost certain it won more awards you know, through awards season than any other film that year. But do you know, I think a lot of the issue is, you go back to, you look at back at 1994, Forrest Gump was the, the, the Oscar darling. Mm. With hindsight, everyone says, well, no, Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, those two films deserved it over Forrest Gump. And I think with 1990, people begrudged the fact that Goodfellas didn't win. And yeah, Goodfellas should have won. There's an argument they should have won Best Picture. But the difference between those two films is minimal compared to, you know, the difference between Forrest Gump it and Pulp No matter how much I love um, Goodfellas, I don't begrudge dances. No, not at all. I don't. Know. I think it's an absolutely just phenomenal film. It's one of those It's one of those ones where, literally, like you say, it's, it's almost a toss of a coin with those two films. If either had won Best Picture, you wouldn't have had a problem either way, would you? No, not Like, when you say, which, when you compare, like, Shawshank to, or, like, Pulp Fiction to Forrest Gump, that's when you can go, yeah. You know, you know that that's that's definite Oscar bait movies. I don't think this was an Oscar bait movie at all. I think it's it's one of the last sort of epic movies, if you like. Yeah, but, you know, before we sort of had a, a resurgence of historical epics, yeah. this was just like you know, this was one of the last great westerns. I know you had Unforgiven in 1992, and we had a slew of you know great westerns after that. We had Young Guns too in the same year, so you know, exactly. Not often we're, not often we're, <laughs> not often we're blessed with two great westerns. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Dances with Wolves. That was November 21st. Also on the same day is one of Rich's favorite films, um, the Three Men and a Little Lady. There's not really much to say about this uh, sequel to Leonard Nimoy. Surprisingly fun original from 1987 it doesn't feature a ghost in it you know so it's not that bad you say you're taking the piss by saying it's one of my favorite films but it is actually one of our family's guilty pleasures on a sunday definitely Hang on, Rich. Hang on, Rich. When you say our family's guilty pleasures, is this one, is you this, mean yours? Is this one where the girls go, "Oh, Dad, not again"? It's <laughs> like, like, like trying to find a like, child to go to the cinema and, to watch a cartoon. Yeah, Rich is there going, "Do you know what? If Tom Selleck had got that in the other, he'd have been massive." <laughs> Rich, if I could just prove Neil right there, go on. Are you a big Steve Gutenberg fan? Um, no, I'm not. I think, um, you liar. know, I think liar. Was <laughs> you're lying. Episode, you're lying. One. Episode one, Rich. Police Academy. Police Academy. Favorite comedies. Which Police Academy. Listen, Which listen, when you've got from? Tom Selleck, if you've got Tom Selleck sharing the screen with Ted Danson and um, Steve Guttenberg, you've got mad, you've got lightning in a bottle, and that's what you had. Not only that, not only that, <laughs> they've got the fish out of water in England. Hilarity yes. ensues. Yeah, I've got to be honest. But it's 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 an adequate. I've got to be honest. It's an adequate sequel. Again, I will say, three men and a baby. I don't mind that, Phil. Uh, this is an adequate sequel. <laughs> 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 I'm trying. I'm trying. I don't need. I don't need your uh, support. I'll I'll die on this hill on my own. Hey, listen. Uh, yeah, any, you will. Any, any film that's got, got Tom Selleck in it is is it's on its way to being a winner. Exactly, exactly. So there was, fortunately, there was a better sequel released on the 21st of November 1991. Robocop 2 was a much-anticipated sequel to a classic 1987 action science fiction film, and here was another. Now, Predator 2 might have lacked some elements that made the original so good. Obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger in arguably his best role as far as performances go. A perfect supporting cast, a wonderful jungle setting. But Stephen Hopkins' 1990 sequel still carries over many of the original film's stronger elements. Now, the Predator itself is still an amazing example of creature design. We learn a lot more about his species and the culture of the alien creature in this film. Plus, 
This seemingly younger Predator has got all sorts of neat and nasty new weapons and gadgets. Alan Silvestri again provides another amazing score. The change in location from a jungle to an urban jungle of sorts is still a welcome one that works. A little jump into the future as well. Yeah, it, yeah, it was set in 1997, wasn't it? So again, yeah. you know, you've got certain things are working that way. For me, this is a film that over the years has gathered its defenders and has, you know, sort of gained more of a reputation. I have never had a problem with this film. Like I was like I was saying about Die Hard 2 uh, in comparison to Die Hard, I would say Predator 2 is, again, in the same sort of category of being the best sequel there could have been. Yeah. And yet, as opposed to Die Hard 2, it's, it's a completely different beast to the original, and I think that's, like, one of the beauties of Predator 2. Yeah. That whole switch, it actually reminded me of, um, in a weird way, and if any of you have seen the first two seasons of True Detective, it reminded me of that in that it shifted from, yeah, from the rural to the to the urban setting. I mean, Predator yeah. does it a whole lot better. I actually only recently saw Predator 2 for the first time, and um, and even when, you know, towards the end, you see the the, the wall of, of sort of trophies and you see the, the xenomorph skull, having not seen the Alien v Predator movies and heard how how awful they are that moment still was kind of like sort of jaw-dropping and i can't imagine what it would have been like seeing it in 1990. it was amazing and i, I didn't see predator 2 in the cinema i saw it on vhs i actually saw a pirated copy uh you know around about the time of the theatrical release i'm ashamed to say but i it, think i did you know, too yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it was my god yeah when you know that that moment towards the end and, and going back you know a bit early on in the film some of my problems with it are that you know, the usually brilliant bill paxton's character He's initially really cringe-inducing in how hard he leans into, you know, some of the film's sort of winsome action film cliches and tropes. Danny Glover also does the same in the first act, but once the film hits its stride in the second half, Danny Glover comes into his own and makes a pretty different but worthy adversary to the Predator. And as far as sequel, sequels go for me, you know, like Neil said, Predator 2 is definitely one of the better ones. And then when you get to that climax at the end and you, you, know, you see that trophy thing, it was just a little Easter egg for the fans, but my God, look at all the conversations that you know that, that started, and then you know eventually you know a, a pretty unfortunate you know sort of spin-off franchise. I think it was just an Easter egg as well. I don't think they had any yeah, intentions. Yeah, yeah. They had no intentions to do Alien v Predator at that stage. No. I don't think, did they? You know. I, I think was that around about the time a Dark Horse done their Alien vs Predator comic book series at that point. I'm not sure if they had. I might be wrong, but I think the comics actually come on the back of the fans' reaction to that. Was it? Yeah. No, I know. Obviously, we've discussed Predator two in detail in our episode with Martin Kessler, but yeah, I, you know, I can't recall if the if the comic book came before, after, or at the same time of this film. They sort of took the elements the, of the Robocop thing as well, didn't they? But I think the comics sort of got their start in the late eighties, if I'm yeah. reading this correctly. Um, so they may have right. come just before, which probably right. may have inspired the the Easter egg. That's what I mean. They were doing sort of Terminator v Robocop comics as well, weren't they? But they were mm, more they were, yeah. they were more sort of fan based, is what I'm saying. They weren't looking to develop these into movies as such. So I think yeah. even if the comic did come out before it, I don't think there was any immediate plans to make a sort of a team up movie, if you like, or a versus yeah. movie. Oh no, they they did all sorts, didn't they? Because didn't we have didn't we have Aliens versus Batman at one point as well? And it was all Batman versus Predator. Batman versus oh, Predator. They're, still, they're still doing it to this day. I think they've got a partner of the Apes in Star Trek. 
mishmash yeah. at, the, at the moment going, or recently. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I'll be honest, Batman v Predator, who doesn't want to see that film? <laughs> I, would, wait, wait, I would be first thank you for that. <laughs> the other sort of Robocop thing I was going to mention as well, where they've got a sort of media input and the sort of news channel and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, um, the hardcore with Morton Downey Jr. Yeah, yeah. and again, it, it plays like the sort of satirical stuff we have through Robocop. So they did lean into it a little bit, but I think they did a brilliant job with Predator 2, we've got to be honest. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's one of the ones that I've yo-yoed on a little bit, but as it stands at the moment now, yeah, I, I really do like the film a lot. Well, it's got a story it wants to tell compared to The Predator, or I haven't seen Robocop 2, but maybe compare it to that as well. But it, it genuinely has a screenplay that wants to say something and not just throw a, an alien adversary in. Well, it, it, does, it does what aliens did so well is that it tells you more about the species without ruining the mythology that was set up in the first film. It expands, just, that? Yeah, it expands, yeah, it expands on yeah. things. And it, yeah, from that point of view, in many regards, it does a lot of the stuff that James Cameron did so well in Aliens in respect of coming along and telling the same but a slightly different story to the first film. Most importantly as well, it develops the story. A lot of times when they spin off a film or they make a sequel to a film, they make the monster the star. And I think sure. that's that's what they've done with every Predator film since, is they've banged, yeah. that, they've banged on that being the Predator being the star of the movie, whereas definitely with the first film, and again with this film as well, like Hayden was saying, there's a story to tell it. It's not just the Predator turns up and kills people. You know, yeah, Danny Glover's character, he's, he's watching his team get sort of whittled down. He's teaming up with the underground sort of gangsters as well. Everyone's in fear of it, and it, you know, I say with um, Gary Busey's character, that was originally Arnold, wasn't it? It was going to be half halfway through the film, Arnold was going to show up, and it was going to be Danny Glover and Arnold battling against the Predator. And I think if they'd done that, it would have been spectacularly bad. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds terrible. But you do sort of you do sort of care for the character, don't you? Do care for Danny Glover's character? It's because he's he's more he's more of an everyman, isn't he? You know, you had you had the towering beast of, of Schwarzenegger, and now this that added something to it as well. Because you know, the the same year he was too old for this shit and lethal weapon, or the year before too old for this shit and lethal weapon too. Mm. You, you're rooting for him, aren't you? Because he's an old, he's an older character as well. Well, I was going to say that one that one scene when he's sort of crawling up the building after the predators just sort of run up a drain pipe, and he's sort of crawling up the building, he's out of breath. It's again leaning into the sort of John McClane action hero mode as well. Yeah. Of, you know, look, he's not indestructible. You know, he's actually out yeah. of breath now. He's, you know, when he gets to the top of the building, if, if he'd said him too old for this shit, you'd have actually believed him, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that he's actually a character, like he's scared of heights, and they make that yeah that clear. And and he's not a perfect character either. You, you disagree with him a lot of the time, and I think that's what makes it effective. But if you want, you know, if you want to, you know, myself and Neil and Martin Castle talk uh, in depth about Predator Two, go back to episode sixteen where we covered. I think Neil, did we do all of the films in the Predator franchise? We we talked glowingly about the first two, and then we went downhill because we because <laughs> we because we, we just seen the Predator, which yeah. had bigger Predator in it. Oh God, <laughs> that's the, oh yeah, still not seen it, still not seen oh, it. Oh don't. Oh Rich, don't. It's, it's, it's Predator versus bigger Predator. It's brilliant. Oh, right. <laughs> I did watch. The don't forget the superhero suit. suit at the end. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, yeah, the Iron Man suit. It's just about four Power Rangers, really, wasn't it? Whatever, but uh, oh God, what an awful film. And again, Arnold was supposed to show up at the end of that as well, wouldn't he? But he didn't. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so I think. Uh, well, yeah, Predator 2 is one of the last sequels now coming up on the list. We think we've got one or two more. Um, then on November 30th, 
Misery. Oh. Now, Steve, you're our resident Stephen King expert. How does Rob Reiner's adaptation fare in the league of Stephen King adaptations? Oh, it's definitely one of the best. I mean, considering it's just two characters and most of it is in one room, it, it and it, and she's so scary. She's she is she is the nurse from hell. You know, I mean, I've known a few people like her, unfortunately, but uh, you know, I mean, it's not it's not a horror in so many senses because you know, I mean, she's not stalking him. I mean, they are stuck in a room together. Um, for the who for the majority of the film, but like I say, she is so overbearing. She's so scary, and that scene with the sledgehammer. Oh dear! Oh, oh my God! The it, hobbling. I, I remember oh. seeing it in the cinema, and the sound of the whole cinema. You know, oh. Everybody. Oh. Yeah. And, and people were covering their eyes. And even now, it, even now. Even now, yeah, yeah, and I mean, you can see all these films with lots of blood and guts and gore and stuff like that. It that they don't have the impact. Of that sledgehammer, yeah, you know. I think it's like, like we were talking before, Stephen. We were saying about Silence of the Lambs, and I was saying to you, for me, scary films are not Freddy Krueger jumping through a wall at you. No. Scary films are this could actually be me. This could actually yeah. happen to me. And when you watch Misery, like you say, all right, yeah, I'm not a top winning author like yourself, yes, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you could find yourself, you know, snowbound and locked up with a crazy lady. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's yeah brilliant film and kathy bates winning you know she deservedly won best actress oscar that year oh, because definitely. her performance is just it's outstanding and, yeah, and nobody looks, saw it come in no she no. Looks, well she looks like a school dinner lady doesn't she she looks like a yeah. you know she looks so friendly and lovely and the way she talks she's so kooky and the way it, and then it just descends more and more into madness doesn't it you know it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant can, can i trust that it's better than the uh the it adaptation of that year I know it was a TV show. I think it's released <laughs> oh, as a yes, movie yeah, these days. Yes, yeah. it is. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a different beast altogether. Uh, I was but what's say, it, what... we're, we're King movies. You've got a very sort of hit and miss ratio, haven't you? This is mm. this is one of the hits, mate. This is one of the ones. This is one of the ones you need to see. Definitely. Oh, you yeah, you run it, run at this one, Hayden. This. But make sure you watch it before you watch the Family Guy parody, because once you watch the Family Guy parody, <laughs> it's very difficult to get that out of your head. <laughs> Stewie's the Cappy Grace, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're moving into December now. December 14th. Uh, now, this is a film which I've, I've still not seen it, probably because this director is probably <laughs> my least favourite director. It's Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Please say we've all not seen it. Please say we've all not seen it. I've okay. seen it. Yeah, I've seen it, I've yes. Seen it. Yeah. Uh, me and you, Yeah, I... <laughs> Yeah, go on in, guys. Anything to say about this? Because uh, I'd much rather move on and talk about Look Who's Talking To, which is released the same day. <laughs> oh, no, Edward Scissorhands is very... It's a sweet film. It's a nice film. I mean, yeah. there's, not, there's nothing uh, objectionable about it at all. I mean, you can just... Uh, yeah. it, Johnny Depp and Tim Burton, it, I would say, I don't know why you just really dislike <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an inoffensive film. Right, I watched it in high school, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's Johnny Depp and Tim Burton when it didn't... When it wasn't the cliche of Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. That's what I would say with that. And yeah, Don't get me wrong. They, they went on to make Ed Wood, which is my favourite Burton film. Oh, yeah, that's great. No, but I would say the Reading joke is like Johnny Depp and Tim Burton, but this is one of their sort of earlier sort of incarnations. And they weren't they weren't parodies of each other yet. Yeah, that's right, that's right. That's the best way of putting it. And it, yeah, it's an enjoyable enough film. And Vincent Price as well is great in it. It's actually one of those films. I, I I genuinely, all jokes aside, I don't know how I haven't seen it. It feels like everyone has seen it, and that's why I said at the start when you said Sky, and I knew I knew you would either either have not seen it or watched it and hated it. I, I don't know how I haven't seen it, but but I think that because of what's come since, uh, and as you say, the parody and 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 the fact that it's them, I I now have no desire to watch it. 
whereas with most of uh, much of David Lynch's films, I, I just they're not always for me. I am actually allergic to Tim Burton. Well, so. for a while, <laughs> Tim Burton was almost like the um, a sweet version of David Lynch. That's the way he seemed yeah. to be going. I mean, he, yeah, you know, yeah. And, uh, and, but of course now he just makes Dumbo and things like that. So if you take David Lynch's weirdness and take the edge off it, the nastiness, then what are you left with? Uh, you're left with Tim Burton, yeah? yeah no, he's yeah. not for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you've got Look Who's Talking to December 14th, then you've got December 19th. Don't just brush over that, Sky, surely. We, we, had, we, had, we had a meeting oh. of minds, Bruce Willis with uh, Roseanne Barr. And... Yeah, it's, it's, we're so long taking notes on this, but go on, carry on. <laughs> yeah, it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, December 19th, Awakenings. Now, Penny Marshall's drama, it stars Robin Williams, Robert De Niro. This film doesn't get discussed anymore, and I haven't seen it for decades, but I will never forget it because it absolutely destroyed me. Oh. I was in bits. I, I only saw it for the first time about four or five years ago. I don't know how I hadn't seen it before, but as you say, it just absolutely destroyed me. It was it was it was so good. I, yeah. I haven't seen this since yeah, around, great. I haven't seen this since around the initial re- video release, I'd say. But um I can remember I can remember, like you say, being getting a little bit of my little bit of grit in my eye when I was watching it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, I think the next one might be one for you, Hayden, December twentieth. Now we know that it came out in its native Japan in nineteen eighty nine. But for convenience, the list we're compiling, or the list we're going off, is films with a North American release in 1990. And this one was released December 20th in the US. Hayden, you're our resident Hayao Miyazaki expert. What have you got to say about Kiki's Delivery Service? I might have to battle Steve for expert on, you know, best expert on Miyazaki. But yeah, Kiki's Delivery Service is just vintage um, Ghibli, isn't it? Like, it, it has all the charm of My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, maybe not quite the narrative polish of those later films like Spirited Away, but it sort of has this this quality where, it, you know, most fantasy stories that spring to mind, like Harry Potter, for example, they feature an original character, uh, sorry, an ordinary character that's sort of thrown into an extraordinary world or circumstance. Whereas in this film, it's a character, this little girl, she's 13 years old. She has, she's a witch and she can fly on a broomstick. But then the film is basically her just doing mundane, you know, ordinary things. She starts up a delivery service. (laughs) In a way, her ability to fly is actually kind of used as just a parable for learning how to be independent and trying to make ends meet. So she sort of hits a wall and stops being able to fly at one point in the film. And it's sort of like, you know, burning out and trying to rediscover what's important. So there's again, just with all of all of Miyazaki's films, there's this really mature theme that that makes it appealing to people of all ages. Have you, any of you guys seen it? I have. You know, this is bit. the one of of all of Miyazaki's films I've not seen. But the way you're describing it then reminds me of Spider-Man Two. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought Steve would have been the one that would have brought in the Marvel reference? We <laughs> <laughs> were doing so well. Just go easy, and now he's showing his true colours. Look, <laughs> we've broken him. <laughs> oh, I will say that the film also the main character has a cat called Gigi, so I've got this little. Uh, it has a place in my heart because I've also got a cat, a little black cat, and I also talk to him, but he just doesn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless you. Hey, so de- December twenty first, one of the the big flops of the year, the bonfire of the vanities. Now, this is a massive Brian De Palma misfire. It was based on Tom Wolfe's novel, starred Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith, 
its budget was a pretty huge $47 million. It grossed $15 million and re received a, an absolute critical mauling as well. This is the big flop of 1990. I'm, I'm a huge De Palma fan, but I've always stayed away from the Bonfire of the Vanity simply because I haven't heard anyone say a good word about it. Oh, okay, I will then if you want to. <laughs> oh, go on, Steve. Surprise <laughs> us. It reminds you of Spider-Man 3. So you're the only person in the world that likes the bonfire of the vanities. Oh, it's it's an incredible mess. It's all over the place. But you're really selling this one. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I can't sell it because, like, like I say, it is, it is a complete mess. But there's something hypnotic about it, which I've always liked, and and it's it looks gorgeous. The direction, the camera work is fantastic. And for some reason, anytime it's it's on, and it's not on very often, thankfully. But every time it is on, I've got to watch it. Again, I'm, I'm talking from a point of view I've not seen it, but then I think if you go back and look at a lot of De Palma's films that were tail end of the 70s, early 80s films, which were like like Body Double, which wasn't particularly well received, but is now being looked back on as one of his better films. Yeah, so yeah, it could, like yeah, it might just be a case of there was so much expectation and hype around the film. But again, you know, I've not seen it, so I can't comment. And you've got, and you've got to read the book as well, Devil's Candy, because uh, right. it's one of the best books about the making of a film and everything that can go wrong did go wrong. And like I say, the film is a car crash. But sometimes, you know, when you're driving along, you've just got to slow down and look. Mm. Am I really selling it to me? <laughs> Steve, in fairness, with the Palmer films, like you say, no matter whether they're good or bad films, they always look great. Let's yeah, be honest. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, so you, you know, you you're selling it on that street, yeah, straightly. Mm. So another film on December twenty first. It's our penultimate film now, and it's the other Arnold Schwarzenegger film from nineteen ninety that we don't ever talk about. A film eighty nine towers. It's directed by Ivan Ghostbusters Reitman, and it is Kindergarten Cop. It's not a tumor. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? This film holds a special place in my heart for one reason and one reason only, is it introduced my son to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because as a, like, uh, I think he was about five or six at the time. It was shown on like ITV2 or something on a Saturday afternoon. He sat there and he was completely engrossed in it all the way through. And it led later in his life then for me to be able to sort of push films more Schwarzenegger-y, if that's a word, into, into his... In, no, uh, more like Commando <laughs> at eight. <laughs> Predator at nine. But, well, but Kindergarten no, Cop is a, it's a 15 certificate, isn't it? It's a 15 certificate if you watch it on DVD, but they do a sort of PG version. They show on TV quite often, don't they? Uh, I, I quite enjoy it, I have to admit. I've got to be honest, I've, I've, like quite often, like Schwarzenegger gets knocked for the sort of comedy vehicles julia i'd have to agree with both kindergarten cop and twins i've got no problem with i'd watch either of those films yeah, yeah i'm not gonna yeah. i'm not gonna sit here and say that i like three men and little lady and say i don't like kindergarten cop so it's it is it is it's, it's easy watching it's fun it's it's it is fun and easy watching do you know what i agree and, like, I and agree. again they're bringing they're bringing characters back like you know stallone did it with rocky and rambo and you know stuff like that let's see a john kimball film no but let's see it based on our first two minutes when he turns up yeah. and he does this ratty the beard, beard. And a trench coat. And he's, I'm the party pooper. You know, let's, let's, <laughs> let's see a, let's see an R-rated John Kimball film. No, but no kid's gonna want to watch it anyway. Even if it's straight to TV, you know, straight to video on demand or whatever. Let's get let's get an R-rated John Kimball spin-off. Hey Neil, Neil, do you know? See, part of the reason I can never be as enthusiastic about Kindergarten Cop is probably because back in 1990, when I'm salivating over films like these R-rated films like Predator 2, Robocop 2, and Total Recall, most of which I was just a little bit too young to see in the cinema, so I, I couldn't see Total Recall in the cinema, 
but I went to see Kindergarten Cop, and I'm sat there <laughs> thinking, oh, this isn't Total Recall. Yeah. And I'd, al- I'd already seen Total Recall on a pirated VHS by that point, and I was just sat there thinking, you know, this is not the Arnold Schwarzenegger film I want to be seeing in the cinema in yeah. 1998. You're just too cool no, for it, that sort of thing, isn't it? I completely, I completely agree with you there, but I'll tell you what, your boys would sit down and watch Kindergarten Cop and thoroughly enjoy it. They would, they would. Right, so that brings us on. December 25th, 1990, our final film on this list. And given the huge amount of sequels we've already discussed, it is a sequel. The Godfather Part 3. All right, let's get a, let's get a message from Joe's house. I respect what he's done. The new overthrows the old. It's natural. How can you do business with this guy? I'm a businessman. First foremost, I want no further conflict with him. You tell him from me that he can live or he can die. Vincent, will you shut up? Godfather Part 3 is a film which I've already written for, for on the site in defense of Godfather Part 3. Uh, you know, the first two are lauded as some of the greatest films ever made and the, also because of the, you know, the artist versus the corporation, how you can still make a great movie out of it. So when they announced the um, third installment in For Christmas in 1990, it, it achieved quite a rare feat because executives, critics and fans all felt that same tingle of excitement in the shorts you know everybody was you know this was going to be the the film that was you know going to save the sequels of the year you know and i think it's fair to say that a lot of people were it didn't quite live up to their expectations but personally i think it's it's great you know it, it, it does suffer because it's in comparison with the first two films but that's just like saying that the Empire State Building is not impressive because it's not the tallest building in the world. I think that if you watch it on its own, you well, you need to watch the first films to make any sense of it. But I think that if you accept what it is, I think that you know it, it, it's really, really, a really, really excellent film. I was going to say that, that with me, I hadn't. I, I watched all three back to back when I was perhaps in in the late nineties. That was the first time that I I watched them all sort of back to back. So I didn't have that sort of 15 years of loving Godfather part one and part two prior to this coming out. So I can completely understand that belated sequel. You're, you're really hoping for, for more of the same and then being dis- being disappointed by certain elements to it because there are disappointed elements to it. Where I was coming at differently was like I say, watching them back to back. I didn't have that expectation. There's no doubt in my mind that it's definitely an inferior film to the first two. But then... You didn't have the years of expectation is what you mean. No, yeah. not... Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you know again... Kind of echoing Sage Stallone, we've got Sophia Coppola, who's. Will you stop? Will you stop with the Sage Stallone bashing? I never mentioned that. <laughs> Sage Stallone's all right. He's all right in that movie. All right, he's as good as any other child actor would have been. Well, uh, yeah, okay, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, you've got you know, same thing again. You know, we've got we've got child of the of the of the director, and and she's possibly the, for me the worst a, thing in the film. 
there's a reason why she's there, is what you're trying to say. Yeah. 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 Winona Ryder was originally, you know, cast for that part, but she couldn't uh, do the film. And I think, yeah. She Only because Tim Burton better. wasn't directing. You know, she would have been better for that role, but uh, you know, I, I haven't got anything against Sofia Coppola. She's she's fine. It's just that she's up against greats, I know, and that's hard, you know, for a first time actress. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as Rich. I yeah, I, obviously I wasn't around in 1990, so I couldn't wait. <laughs> I didn't have to wait for this film. But yeah, like I I'll still watch the first two Godfathers and be excited and compelled um but I, I don't even i've only seen part three once and i'm not sure if i'll watch it again i think in 1990 when godfather 3 first came out i don't actually think i'd seen the first two godfather films um i think i saw them later on in the 90s uh, you know the first two were just undisputed masterpieces two of the greatest films of all time but like you know when steve wrote that article for the site it, you know, it brought a smile to my face because the way he worded it and the, you know the defenses he raised about that film, you know, I, I do agree with them. It, it is like you say, Steve. It's criticizing a film for not being as great as the two films that came before it, but that doesn't necessarily make it a bad film. Yeah, it's got some weak elements. Sofia Coppola isn't great. Personally, I think that Joe Mantegna isn't particularly great, and he comes across as like a sort of rent a mob bad guy, and I, I I don't like him. But you know, there's a lot of good stuff in the film. And there's a lot of stuff that really does work. And, you know, that bit on the steps when Michael just lets out that silent cry. Yeah. You know, much yeah. like in Superman when Christopher Reeve did it. it. It just, it gets me every time. Yeah. It really does. I like The Godfather Part 3. And I will forgive it for its, its, its problems in, in certain elements. It still is, I think, one of the best crime dramas I'd certainly seen, you know, from the early 90s. And it does get a bit of a bad rap, but that's only because you're comparing it to the first two films. Right. And it's the same year as Goodfellas. And it's, yeah. And, it, and it's kind of, you know, had it been like a year or two before or a year or two yeah. after, perhaps perhaps it wouldn't have been, you know, I know it's not necessarily compared to that, but, but you'd seen something new that year. You'd see, you know, with, with, as you say, that was... Yeah. Goodfellas was genre-defining, wasn't it? And and oh God, for yeah. this then, for this then to come about, you, you can understand people feeling that that it was it was disappointed. But I do think, I genuinely think, is for anyone who, who who's on the fence over it, it's definitely worth a, worth a rewatch. Like I'll say to other listeners, right? You know, a lot of these films we're talking about, we've written about for the site. You know, I've written about Robocop too. Please go back and and read all of Neil's pieces on the Rocky films. They're just magnificent. And please go back and read Steve's piece on the Godfather Part Three because he conveys in detail a lot of what you know how we all feel about this film. Definitely, it's not one you could say insists upon itself, is this guy? No, it's not. <laughs> to, to bring just one last Family Guy reference into this episode. <laughs> So that 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 brings this exhaustive list to a close. I wonder, gents, is there is there a podcast out there that has talked about as many films in one episode as we have done tonight? I think it's great that we're film eighty nine and we talked about nineteen ninety for our fiftieth episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. so that was. We're always moving forward, kids. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, we know it's not a definitive list, and there were obviously hundreds more films released that year, and the ones we've discussed are certainly evidence of 1990, as far as we are concerned, being a great year for film. One that you know, the four older members of the team, namely myself, Neil, Stephen, Richie, have got a great sentimental attachment to. We apologise for the lack of a favourite segment this episode. 
but you know the topic we've discussed would be ideal fodder for it and you know we'd love to hear what your favorite films of 1990 are but we felt to, to put you know any other segments in given the exhaustive list of films we covered tonight just wouldn't leave room for you know for anything else but we would love to hear your favorite picks from that year so please send us a tweet hit us up on facebook or email us at admin at film89.co.uk with your choices of your favorite films for 1990 because we're always open to discussion of film and you know we'd love your thoughts on the episode i think we were all quite surprised although just when we looked at 1990 there was always this thing about it being the year of the sequel but then we were you know obviously we knew about all these films but when you start listing all of those films it 1990 was obviously an episode worth a year of film i'd be interested to, to for listeners to suggest any other year where there is a similar or anywhere near level of volume of releases that would compare with 1990 it is like that is it the volume of releases isn't it it was so you know and again like if you look at our list half the films are sequels which is just crazy yeah you know we do just defy anyone to find that you know and we're not talking low-budget independent films straight to you know, DVD or, or VHS sequels. We are talking about mainstream, released into American cinemas and British cinemas, sequels. There was not another year like it. And even I, you know, back in 1990, when I was just gearing up to this incredible summer of films, I was thinking, holy shit, there's just so many cool sequels coming out this year. So, chaps, 50 episodes in, did you think that we would make it this far when we first discussed the idea of dipping our toes in the podcast pond? I'm surprised we haven't got past episode one, to be honest. It's gone by so quickly and gone by in such a world. But, it, it, you know, I am you know I know we're, we're British and we don't, obviously, with, with Hayden as well, but we're not, you're not known for being too self-congratulatory. But I do think it it's a hell of an achievement, considering, you know, it, it's our hobby, isn't it? We've said this before. This this yeah. is very much our hobby. We've all we've all got families. We've all got jobs. And this is what we do as a, as, as a hobby. And I think that to have carried on, and, and it isn't, you know, the site, as we said before, we're a group of mates who like talking about films, but we have a range of guests on. We, you know, the, the family's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we cover a wealth of topics. And I think that, you know, it, it, it is something we should be proud of because it, in, in two and a half years, which is what it is for the, for the podcast anyway, I think 50 episodes is, is a hell of an achievement. I think, uh, I think we should really sort of chat for ourselves. I got to say, when we're looking back on sort of like specific years and specific films from those years, it's nice because the sentimentality that's attached to a lot of these films for me to hear you guys talk about them as well is an absolute blast. And I'm, I'm going to be a little bit self-indulgent and say quite often I will refer to copies of films I've seen. And a lot of them is uh, thanks to my uncle who used to bring them up to me. My uncle passed away last week, so I'd like to say thank you, Joe, because without you, I wouldn't have seen a lot of these films. Well, well, uh, thanks, Joe, for that, mate. Well said, mate. Yeah, well said. So, gents, where can our listeners reach us if they want to harangue us for some of our opinions tonight or just to shoot the breeze about anything else film or television related? Neil? You can find me on uh, Twitter at Neil underscore Gaskin. I am on Facebook, but you'll never find me, you crazy podcasts. Uh, but uh, other than that, just, <laughs> and you do try. Oh, why do you try? Other than that, you can hit me up through the site at uh, film89.co.uk. Rich? Yep, I'm on Twitter, Richard underscore Roberts. Every now and again, I'll be on there. Steve? Yeah, I'm on Twitter again. That's the best place to contact us all, I think. And that's uh, at Welsh Bluesman. Uh, yep, you can find me at Hayden Spiral on pretty much any social media platform, unlike the rest of these guys who weren't in the negatives in 1990. I'm pretty <laughs> well-versed to make my way around social media. So, Oh, he's got to, he's got to have a little dig oh, now, isn't he, towards the end. These millennials. What he doesn't know is every time he does this, we're sucking a little bit of the essence of his youth away from him. (laughs) We only grow stronger. (laughs) I feel that. Uh, Yeah, 
thanks guys this has been thoroughly enjoyed it you know just waves of nostalgia and i think you know that's often what we most enjoy doing is just digging into that sort of nostalgia thing and you know it's nice to come out of the 80s because everyone's has been nostalgic for the 80s for the last couple of years and, and move on to the 90s now because this was a really special year and it was around about that time like 89 90 that it really did sort of get full on into films and obviously that's why we decided to call our website film 89 because it represents you know an important sort of part of our lives when we were younger and we were you know getting into all of this and obviously hayden was uh he was minus four in uh <laughs> in, in 1989 so it doesn't mean so much to him but now guys it's been i've thoroughly enjoyed this this has been just great and you know like you say rich it's a milestone 50th episode that we're all really proud of we're all really grateful to all of our friends and supporters and all the listeners out there which have just made this all possible really absolutely yeah thanks guys seconded you can catch me on uh, Twitter and Facebook, but mostly on Twitter at Sky Movies, and you can catch us all on Twitter and Facebook at Film89UK. Please, if you want to hit us up with an email, that email address again is admin at film89.co.uk. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, we're going to have to zip back forward to 2020, get our heads back out of the nostalgic past, and deal with the uh, trying times we find ourselves in. But until next time, boys and girls, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, Stay smooth. Jackson smooth. (laughs) What a dick. (laughs) 